This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens about two months ago. I sip on it first thing in the morning while I make my coffee, and it has become one of my favorite parts of my morning routine. As all of you know, I prioritize eating whole foods when it comes to my nutrition, but it can be really hard to get fresh produce and high quality food when you live on the road or travel to remote areas. One scoop of Athletic Greens has 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. I think of it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. If I take Athletic Greens in the morning, I know I'm covered. To make your decision easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com nugget. Again, that is athleticgreens.com nugget to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This episode is also brought to you by Rhino Skin Solutions, my go-to when it comes to taking care of my skin. I was actually climbing on one of my projects today and tore a huge chunk out of one of my fingers. I tore a huge flapper and I'm gonna be using the split stick and the repair cream like crazy for the next week to try to heal my skin as fast as it can. If you wanna level up your skin game, head over to rhinoskinsolutions.com to check out their great line of products and enter code NUGGET at checkout for 20% off your next order. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Dimmitt. And my guest today is Mina Leslie Vujastic. Mina is a professional climber from the UK. She is also a writer, a speaker, and she is the co-host of the Curious Climber podcast, along with Hazel Finley, who's been on the show. And this was a very fun episode for me. I actually met Mina in 2012 on a climbing trip to Joe's Valley. She and her now husband, David, were on a three-month road trip to the States, and we talked about that in this conversation. We talked about meeting back then, and it was really fun to come full circle and interview her. Um, I've known her for a long time, but we didn't know each other very well. We'd only spoken a handful of times over the years via emails back and forth and things like that. So this was really fun. She's awesome, really well-spoken, really thoughtful, and a total badass climber. She climbs hard. She's climbed as hard as V13 or 8B on the boulders. She specializes in bouldering and sport climbing. She's also climbed 514B or 8C on a rope. So very impressive resume. It was really fun to talk about lessons she learned from her parents and from her upbringing, how she got into climbing. And we talked a lot about some of her hardest boulders and then making the switch to sport climbing and some of the trends that she's noticed with really high-level boulderers and sport climbers that set them apart from everyone else. That was really interesting. Mina is also the mother of a newborn baby boy named Isaac. He's, I believe, seven months old at the time I'm recording this. And yeah, it was really fun to pick her brain about the decision to become a mom and how she and David navigated that. They're both really high level climbers. And I was curious to hear what kind of thought they put into that. And she had a really 
great, thoughtful answer. And yeah, it was just beautiful to hear her talk about motherhood. There's some things we didn't talk about in this conversation, and that was on purpose. Mina has her own podcast with Hazel Finley called The Curious Climber Podcast, where they interview other climbers. They've also done some episodes with one another. And we touched on Mina's experience with Red S, which stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And I believe Mina and Hazel did an entire episode together talking about Mina's experience with that, if you want more of the context about her journey with Red S. Mina and Hazel also invited me on their podcast to do a three-way conversation, this was a few months ago, called What Recovery Looks Like. And Mina shared what her recovery from Red S has looked like. I talked about my recovery from disordered eating and getting my energy back and kind of learning to climb in a new body, carrying more muscle and more weight and yeah, adapting to the new norm. So we didn't go too deep into those topics on this podcast. I will link to both of those episodes of the Curious Climber podcast in the show notes if you want to check those out. Otherwise, thank you guys for tuning in. I think you'll really enjoy this one. Mina's just so much fun and such a delight to talk to. Please enjoy this episode with Mina Leslie Vuyastic. Hi, how you doing? I'm good, Mina. How are you? Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Good You're to see you. I'm in Waco Tanks. Nice. The sun is shining cool. again. We just got buckets of rain for a couple of days, but... Oh, wow. That's not like... Waco. I know. I know. I know. I always think of it as like the place that doesn't rain. Yeah. I think I think we're through it. I think that was winter. Two days of wet. And <laughs> now, now it's going to be beautiful and sunny for the rest of the trip. Perfect. Yeah. Where are you? Where are you talking to me from? Uh, I'm in Sheffield. I'm in Sheffield, so... Home sweet home. Where, where we call home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. And uh, actually went out on the grit today, which is cool. Nice. Um, yeah, which is nice. It's been uh, it's been very wet and kind of unseasonably warm here okay. for this time of year. Um, yeah, so it's been kind of tricky to get out with the weather not being great, plus, yeah, baby life. Baby life. How is that? How are you? <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. I absolutely love baby life. It's um it's brilliant. Um hmm. it's it's one of those funny things, I guess, like having a child and it's like full commitment and you have no idea if you're gonna like it or what it's gonna be like until you do it. But once you do it, there's no going back. <laughs> And I remember talking to people before, you know, when you're trying to decide or, you know, thinking about it and having conversations with friends and everyone says it's amazing. And you're like, well, are you all just so fully committed that, you know, <laughs> no one's going to say it's not amazing. <laughs> totally. But I'm now one of those people that says it's amazing. And I promise I'm not just lying because it's done. Oh, that's great. That's great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny, though. Yeah, you can't you can't you have to tell yourself that, don't you, just to survive the experience. You can't say, oh, actually, I regret this. This totally sucks. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think many people say that, but genuinely, I don't feel that at all. That's amazing. So glad to hear that. I have two sisters and they both have kids now. And my oldest sister, Allison, she has a two-year-old daughter. So I've most recently seen her go through that process. And it's just fun. It's just, man, what a trip to to observe it as an uncle, Uncle Stephen, and just watch it from the outside. It's just, man, what an, what an adventure. Yeah, no, it certainly is that. Yeah. Um, I have a bunch of questions for you about motherhood, but let's save those for later. Um, hi, any any questions for me before we just jump into this thing? I'm already rolling as I like to do. You already what? Sorry, I missed you. I'm already recording. I'm already recording. Everything's good to go okay. on my end. Yeah. Cool. yeah I, I wasn't sure if we'd started or not. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, um. I, always, I always do that. But then it's always really fun to just include that stuff. But I always like to take a second to check in. I can edit this out. Um, sure. Do you want to try to end at a specific time or, or have like a cutoff point? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, I think I probably make less coherent sense as, as long periods of time go on. So <laughs> you'll probably just be like, okay, <laughs> or rambly. So we're going to wrap it up. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably open, although I'm generally an early to bed person. So I'll just okay. start looking a bit droopy. droopy at some point. <laughs> yeah. I'll keep my eye out for that. Okay. That'll be my cue. Visual and auditory cues. I'll be, I'll be looking for those. Yeah. Um, but it's so good to be talking to you. I f- you're one of those people. I feel like I know you more than I actually do. We met years and years ago, and I've followed a lot of your writing and some of your story over all these years. Uh, but we've, I mean, we haven't really talked much at all. We did one episode of your podcast with Hazel. And when I met you, I think that was 2012 in Joe's Valley. And that's probably it. Yeah. That's that's probably the only times we've really talked outside of a couple emails back and forth here and there. But um, this is really fun. I believe that was that was nearly ten years ago. I know, isn't that wild? <laughs> I, do you remember that? Do you remember? Do you remember that um, that meeting? Because for me, I'll just share some some context. So I had just graduated from college. I was on a six month road trip in my Subaru. I didn't know it was six months at the time, but. Um, I had some money saved up. I just finished an internship and I was traveling around the States in my Subaru. And Joe's Valley was one of my stops. I think it was September or early October in 2012. And I was climbing with a couple of friends of mine. I was probably climbing V7 at the time, maybe as hard as, I think I did like a V9 on that trip, but most mostly climbing in that V7 range. And I remember meeting you and David and it was at the Wills of Fire Boulder and I think that morning David had just sent the entire boulder. And I mean, it's a very stacked boulder with all these hard things on it. You were trying a V10 or a V12 beyond life. And it's fun to tell you this. It was a really eye-opening moment for me because in my travels, I'd only been exposed to local U.S. climbers, relatively small crags. I hadn't seen international climbers before, and I certainly hadn't met anyone or any couple at the caliber that you guys were climbing at. And you guys were just putting down new double digit boulder problems every climbing day. And it really had an impact on me. It really blew my mind to, to see that, to see how strong you guys were and how driven and wow, they flew all the way from the UK to climb at Joe's Valley. Who knew? <laughs> who knew it was a destination and who knew people were so strong? So. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It's a fun memory. Yeah. I reckon um, the people that, um, uh, like in the food ranch and stuff probably also thought 
who are these people with these strange <laughs> British accents? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it is kind of a slightly random place, isn't it? It is, um, absolutely. Um, amazing, though. We loved it there. We absolutely loved it. We were on a um, three-month road trip. We'd, we'd actually spent a month in Colorado in the summer. I think we'd been out for the Vail World Cup or something. We'd, done, we'd spent a month in Colorado after the Vail World Cup and that it was a year when there was this massive heat wave and the park was also closed at certain times. So basically we, we could only go in after like 4.30 in the afternoon. So we'd drive from Boulder, hike up, pretty much start climbing as it went dark, climb by head torch and then like hike back down at like one in the morning. So it was like this totally ridiculous trip where we became nocturnal because of the park rules and because of the weather. <laughs> and um, anyhow, we went home after that Um but then while we were on that trip, we basically were we were trying to plan a trip for that autumn. And we were like, oh, let's go back to the States. And we bought a van off some Austrian friends of ours who just finished a road trip in the States. So we like bought their van. It was like an old GMC, like early 90s GMC van with like an electric bed. It was so cool. And, an electric um, bed. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Fancy. <laughs> random because it was like no but it was this really old van with this electric bed in it it was like, it was like really out of place that it had this like snazzy equipment and yeah it was really good so we we did our first bit of our trip back in Colorado with slightly better weather and um and then yeah we went on to Joe's Valley and then eventually on to Yosemite as well mm. we stopped in a few other places but um yeah the Joe's Valley bit was awesome we had a great time there we loved it um I think we were both climbing at a level that suited the area really well. I think yeah. most areas have a kind of grade bracket where they're best, don't they? Like they not do, necessarily don't they? one grade, but like, I don't know, V7 to V11 is great in X place, whatever. And I think for Joe's Valley at the time, it was like a sweet spot for us. And, uh, yeah, it's it's like the land of V10s. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, which at the time was kind of perfect for me. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. But can't believe that was 10 years ago. Can you take us back and fill in a little more color? Um, where were you at in life at the time? How old were you? Yeah. Ooh. Okay, I'd have to work that out from how old I am now. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> so I would have been 25. Yeah. Because it was autumn. <clears throat> so I'll be 35 this April. Okay. I'm 34 at the moment. Um, so yeah, I would have been 25. So mid-20s. Um, 2012, David and I had only been together for like a year. So it was like relatively early in our, um, at least romantic relationship. Cause we were really good friends for like three years before we got together. Oh, that's great. Um, which was cool. Yeah. Really cool. Nerve wracking though, when you kind of get together with your best friend, because it's, uh-huh. it's kind of a bit of an all or nothing, like <laughs> this is either going to be amazing or I'm going to ruin this awesome friendship. <laughs> Um, yeah. Anyway, it worked out 10 years later we got a baby. So uh, we still like each other so far. Um, yeah, so we'd only been together for like a year and a bit. And we, um, yeah, what else was going on? 25, gosh. So Vail World Cup, were you still competing at the time? Yeah, I must have been. Yeah, 2012. Yeah, so I was competing. And actually 2013 was probably my best year. So I think... 2012 I must I think I did a few world cups but maybe not the full season and I like got a taste for it and I really enjoyed it and I had some what for me were um relatively good performances I was never kind of podium winning world cups kind of material really I was always kind of knocking on the door of trying to get into finals um 
but yeah, I think I really enjoyed 2012 and that gave me quite a lot of psych for um, the 2013 season. Cause when we got back from that trip, I then kind of trained for the comps and then I did, did the full 2013 season. Yeah. So I guess that trip was just, bef- I just spent a bunch of time outside bouldering and then went into um, indoors for like the next half of the year, which yeah. is kind of an odd um, contrast, I guess. Did you enjoy that? that process? Yeah, I did at the time. I really did at the time. I feel like competitions are something that I enjoyed until I suddenly didn't. And then Mm. when I suddenly didn't, I was so over it. And it was really like night and day for me. And now I, I, I am not interested in doing even like, I haven't done a single competition since not even like anything local or anything since I decided to stop doing world cups. Cause it was almost like once once my head wasn't there, my head just wasn't there at all. Hmm. But I do, you know, I really did enjoy it for a period back there. I really enjoyed the buzz. I enjoyed the travel. I enjoyed the kind of competition community. There's lots of really nice people. And you, you, I guess when you do more of a circuit, you you see the same faces all the time. Hmm. You get to know people from different teams and stuff. And that was really cool. Um, and there's a certain amount of buzz to it. There's an excitement, especially if you feel like you're climbing well and, um yeah, there's definitely ups and downs because obviously there's also downs when you travel all the way somewhere and then, I don't know, you don't get through the first round or something and you're like, ugh. <laughs> right, right. You have one day and that one day doesn't go awesome and then that's it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And with travel, there's always something, you know, like there's different time zones or maybe you're staying in a hotel and like you don't sleep well for whatever reason. And then you've got to perform, you know, with outdoor climbing, you can come back another day. Mm. I like that about outdoor yeah, climbing. Me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> I like trying to flash stuff and do things first try, but I love that if I don't, <laughs> then I just change yeah. my goal <laughs> and I get yeah, to exactly. come back and do it. Exactly. Yeah. It's funny, even though I did comps, I've never been that big into like flashing um, boulders outside. Maybe because I did that with comps, I was never that... Um, I mean, maybe I'd have a go, but I, I was never, I know some people that like really like want to try and flash things or save things for a flash. And mm. that's never really been something that's motivated me. Maybe because in juxtaposition to the comps, I quite like the laid back uh, feel of, of when you're climbing outside on mm. stuff. Looking at your career, you strike me as a more project oriented climber. I mean, you, you have an incredible breadth of experience and you've done a lot of climbs, but do you enjoy that the most? Like really really getting to know a climb intimately and dissecting it and that process. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I would, I would say that I guess when I've had my head most involved in, um, certain climbs or like boulders or roots or something, it's been that, mm-hmm. that kind of uh, mentality, that project mentality. Um, I also, I really like kind of, I think like most people, I quite like, you know, quick sends where, when you do something, say in a session or two or three sessions, I find that really satisfying and probably more and more now um, because I don't necessarily um, have the, quite the same outlook that I used to, but I also have really enjoyed season projects and multiple season projects. I still have lots of unfinished business as a result of that attitude. <laughs> It's a result of enjoying trying hard stuff over the years. There's a lot of things that I've tried and not done. But that's fine. That's cool, right? You learn something from each one and yeah. maybe I'll go back and do them one day or maybe I won't and that's okay too. 
Yeah. Do they still feel, how do they feel now when you think about those things? Do they still feel like unfinished business or do they feel like past chapters of your life that you've moved past? Uh, It depends on the roots. Okay. It's mostly roots actually, rather than boulder problems that I feel like that about. There's some boulder problems. Um, Some roots I'm like, huh, maybe I just, now having a family, I'm a little bit more like logistically, how would that work mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to get back to, I don't know, a particular thing, depending on where it is in the world and the logistics of of getting back there and getting back to that level. Because often these things are things that I've tried when I've been at my very strongest. And uh, yeah. I don't feel particularly bad climbing at the moment, but I am seven months postpartum, so I'm <laughs> definitely not my best. Um, so... Yeah, there's the whole like, will I ever be in that shape again? And also logistically with a family, how would that, would it ever, would I ever be at the bottom of that route tying in again? Mm. Um, And obviously it's possible, but I guess your motivation has to be at a certain level to get you there. And then I guess there's some, also some routes that I've just drawn a line under and I I won't be going back on. And that's, um, that's that for those ones. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I have some of those written down and, um, boulders and roots and i'm really interested in hearing about your transition from from an emphasis on bouldering to sport climbing and what what initiated that i guess like what sparked that change in interest um so yeah we kind of have a roadmap laid out in front of us a lot of things to talk about but before that i want to take one step back i got a question from a listener about your early climbing and i thought it was just a very intriguing question it I wonder if it'll make any sense to you and it just okay. sparked curiosity for me. So this is from Constantinos and Constantinos writes, ask her if she started climbing at the West way and who was her first coach? Was it Hitman Liam? Does the name Hitman Liam mean anything to you? Hitman Liam. I'm assuming he means Liam Halsey. Okay. But I don't know. I don't know the Hitman reference. Okay. Okay. But that might have been because I was like a child at the time. Maybe he was called that by his like older friends or something. I don't know. Um, a, a I don't nefarious know background actually... that you didn't know about as a kid. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if Liam actually coached me. The first person that kind of took me under their wing and taught me climbing really was a guy called Sandy Ogilvie. Um, and that wasn't actually at the Westway Climbing Wall. That was at a climbing wall called The Climb. Um, amazing name there, in a town called Amersham, which is where I grew up, uh, which is not far from the Westway. It's a kind of a bit more on the kind of outskirts outside of London, whereas Westway is in kind of West London. But so Sandy Ogilvie taught me for a while. And then a guy called John Gibbons also really took me under his wing, taught me a lot and um, really kind of nurtured my climbing, which was wonderful. And he used to work at the climb in Amersham, but then he got a job managing the Westway. And so it was actually through him. I started, I started working at the Westway when I was like, you know, it, it was just taking, helping out with kids groups, being an extra pair of hands kind of thing. And when I was quite young, I think it was like 14 maybe. And um, yeah, so then I spent a lot of time at the Westway and Liam was one of the climbers around during that time. He was probably one of the first people I saw climb where I really was like, wow because he's an incredible climber really um I haven't seen him in years actually because I have seen him you know as an adult again since uh, a fair bit but not for a while and he's he's quite a kind of dark one of those UK dark horse climbers Mm. um I don't actually know if he's still climbing I've not heard anything about him for a while um but that might just be me being out of touch um 
but yeah, really incredible climber, incredible to watch. Like I, you know how you have some memories as a child that really stay with you. And I really remember seeing him climb and just being like, wow, that's amazing. I want to do that. <laughs> do you remember what it was? Like, what was it about his climbing that caused that reaction in you? He just looked like Spider-Man. I think he mm. was one of the first people I saw climb through a roof on it was on a root wall so like a lead wall so it was up high on a rope climbing on this horizontal thing and I was just like wow that's amazing (laughs) um yeah and you started quite young didn't you you started at eight years old yeah eight years old um through a actually I say I started at the climb in Amersham it was actually before that I climbed a little bit at a place um kind of similar area in the UK and one of those kind of really old school man-made walls that is outside you know with the discs and the kind of um almost like brick features on it you know it's really old walls my mum just took me along there to kind of find out if it was something I could be involved in we we lived in India for a bit when I was from when I was seven till when I was eight and we spent a lot of time outside there was a jungle gym at school I was always climbing around on it climbing up trees things like that I think partly just warmer weather we were outside a lot more than um, growing up in the UK and I guess using using our bodies in in a different way and I did a lot of kind of gymnasticy type stuff as well and when we moved back to England I really missed playing on the jungle gym. So I used to like climb in the house and on banisters and up sides of things. I remember like going up onto the roof and stuff. And I, my mom was like, huh, I wonder if like climbing is a thing. Because um, obviously I, I guess like most of my parents weren't climbers and I guess in the mainstream, they obviously knew that like mountaineering was a thing, but rock climbing and yeah. Anyway, so they found this wall and took me along and that was kind of that. What brought your family to India for that year? Uh, both my parents were academics. So my mum specialised in, they're both Indologists. So my mum specialised in kind of ancient Indian religion and gender. So a lot to do with kind of women in India. And she got a sabbatical. She worked for SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. And she got a sabbatical to write a book, which is essentially a year where you're not teaching students and you can focus on writing. So and my dad, um, again, an Indologist. So he specialized more in ancient Indian uh, medicine. So like Ayurveda and a lot of kind of translating, curating old Sanskrit manuscripts, that kind of thing. And he managed to get a sabbatical at the same time as my mum had one. And it made sense for them to be in India, you know, being able to look at texts in libraries and be in there whilst writing. So yeah, pretty niche. (laughs) Yeah, that is. That is. I'd love to hear if you have distinct memories or clear memories from that time in your life and whether that shaped your perception of the world, because me, I I don't think I've talked about this much on the podcast, but my dad was an attorney and he and his partners came up with this, this sabbatical program where they gave themselves six months off every five years. They're all in this rotation. And so when I was five years old, we got to spend six months going all over South America and very much on the cheap. You know, there was a family of five. We all had backpacks. We were staying in hostels with cockroaches and stuff, like very much on the cheap. And it really, I wasn't conscious of it because I was five years old. But when I reflect back on my life, I think it really opened me up to this wider world, all these different ways of living and showed me what I had growing up in the States and, and um, 
you know, kind of put a spotlight on these things that are really easy to take for granted if you haven't been exposed to these other ways of life. Can you point to any specific things that have stuck with you from that time living in India as a kid? Definitely. I mean, I think, like you said, it's really, I think you're such a sponge, aren't you, at that age? And I think you do take in a lot of things around you. And and I remember, I remember things like the school bus, the getting the bus to school and how busy it was and how just every, the, the systems were so different and it felt like there weren't any systems, <laughs> to be honest. Um, there, there was a certain amount of kind of chaos compared to, or what seemed like chaos compared to the UK at least. And I remember looking out of the window on on the school bus and and seeing, you know, just really different landscapes and and also seeing a lot of people who didn't have as much as we had and didn't have the opportunities and the um, the kind of basic provisions that people in the UK and I guess generally in the Western world would take as as basic standard things. So I think that was probably one of the main kind of big big things. Um, I also remember because I, I think it was quite intimidating. I remember being stared at quite a lot. That's something that really stuck with me because um, my sister and I, I remember waiting for like the bus and like going to school and stuff like that. And, and just being stared at a lot in the street. I mean, we are white Caucasian, but my sister and I are also quite blonde. I'm blonde now, but when I was like that young, I was like almost white blonde hair. Uh, same, and same with me. Yeah. Really stood out. Yeah. And, you know, we looked, we looked different. And I remember being very aware that I looked different to other people around me. And for that reason, I got, we got more attention and it wasn't necessarily negative or positive. It was just attention. And I remember how that felt. And I remember being, I guess, an older, but still a child thinking that must be difficult for people in the UK who are in the minority um, and understanding that a bit better, being able to empathize a bit more with the feeling of feeling different to mm. most of the people around you. That's so, that's so interesting and so cool. You seem, I mean, I knew this from your writing and from your podcast, but you seem like such a reflective, self-aware person. Has that always been part of your personality? Have you always been one to to reflect on your experiences and kind of synthesize them like that, even from childhood? Uh, I guess so, probably. I think my parents probably quite like that, so it probably rubs off. Yeah. Um, I remember my dad once when um, when I was, I must have been early teens, you know, like 11 or 12 or something. I think I'd fallen out with a friend at school, you know, I don't know, maybe they stole my pen or something, you know, like something really small. <laughs> And uh, being really upset, maybe it was more than a pen, uh, being upset about it. And um, my dad being like, but, you know, you're feeling this really intense thing at the moment. This, You're feeling really upset. Whoever it is has really upset you. And what you're feeling right now is is very real and it's very strong, but it will pass. And you will feel better again. And I remember thinking, that's good news, right? Okay, cool. <laughs> and then he was like, and then that will pass and something else will happen and you'll feel sad again. Or maybe you'll feel angry. Or, and he was like, you know, this is how it goes in life. You have these ups, you have these downs, 
but it's helpful to remember that that you know he was basically teaching me about impermanence mm. and i was like a really young wow. you know like 11 or 12 but i i really remember it because i mean partly because i remember being quite pleased at it passing and then him being like but it's going to be back <laughs> and i was like oh <laughs> <laughs> but that i've always remembered that because wow. it, i think it did yeah. you know, help to give me that perspective of like you know you do feel bad and and that's real and it's okay to feel that but it will lift you know the the event won't change but the intensity of what you feel will change mm. and knowing that now is really helpful but also knowing that this kind of thing will happen again in some other form but you'll be better equipped next time mm -hmm. and each time after that you'll be better and better equipped was i think what he was getting at that is a powerful and profound lesson to learn as a kid that's a, that's amazing it's amazing. That sounds like my mindfulness practice now as a 32-year-old. I'm I'm working on that. <laughs> I mean, I mean me too pretty much. I'm yeah, still yeah. just trying to do that same thing. Um but yeah, it's definitely been helpful. <laughs> it's part of it, I guess. It is a lifelong journey. Yeah. Um let's return to climbing. I want to I'm curious as starting as an 8-year-old kid, this must have been in the 90s. What was the emphasis of your climbing, coaching? Were comps already, competitions already on your radar and were you preparing for that? And at what point did outdoor climbing become a focus or, or become, were you shown that by one of these adults that you climbed with at the gym? How did, how did that kind of become integrated into your life? Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, there were a couple of different people at different times that took me under their wing. And that involved kind of all those things you just spoke about. It involved, I guess, the base from which I learned was an indoor climbing wall. So I got into, you know, there'd be local competitions, you know, like a local bouldering league or something. And I would get involved in that. And then, you know, you do well at a competition and then you're like, oh, there's this other competition or there's this youth series or something. And so from the kind of local stuff, I guess the grassroots stuff, I then started doing, you know, dabbling in a few other things and, and I enjoyed them. They were good fun. But at the same time, those people that were teaching me to climb via, you know, the kids club and some private lessons um, also would, were just amazing. You know, looking back, they were brilliant with me because they didn't, you know, it could have just been like, this is my job. You come to the wall, I teach you to climb, that's it. But they, you know, because my parents didn't climb, right? So they took me up to the Peak District. They took me down to Portland, which is like a sport climbing um, venue on the south coast um, of the UK. So they really like helped me to try all the different flavors at the beginning of, of climbing. Um, my first Fontainebleau trip, I was 13. Um, I think my first Peak District trip, I was maybe 10 or 11. So the first couple of years was more, more indoor stuff. Um, but yeah, it was brilliant. And uh so I feel like I had quite a mixed um, intro at the beginning. It's definitely more climbing wall based because my parents weren't climbers. But thanks to all the great people that I met at the beginning, quite a lot of outdoor stuff as well. And I, I guess it both piqued my interest. Mm. And it seemed like you you ended up having maybe a decade in your teens and adulthood, early adulthood of bouldering as the prime focus, both in competition and in outdoor bouldering. At least that's what it seems like from the outside. Was there a specific, was it Fontainebleau? Was there a specific boulder memory or experience that really, really excited you or sparked your interest and kind of set you down that path? 
Actually, no, I don't. I can't think of anything. So as a teenager, <laughs> I did both. As a teenager, I very much did both. I was, I did the kind of mixed competition series where you'd root climb and you'd boulder. I did the bouldering leagues because they were a thing. But I would say as a teenager, I very much did rope climbing and bouldering. And the same with my outdoor climbing, sport climbing and bouldering. And then I actually didn't climb for a couple of years in my late teens. And when I got back into climbing, I moved to Sheffield to go to university. I didn't climb for the first year I was here. And then I got back into climbing. And it was just because I went to the wall and I did some bouldering. And then I got in with, I kind of met some people and got in with a group of people, I guess, that were more into bouldering because it was quite social climbing. When I got back Mm. into it, you know, I had this, obviously this climbing history of, you know, through my teens. But when I kind of rediscovered it, it was more social and, you know, we, and bouldering, I guess, is quite social, maybe a little bit more of a kind of social scene. So like bouldering at the wall, going out into the peak on the grit, bouldering, going to the pub afterwards, going to parties, you know, it was very much like I stepped into a culture and a community rather than just a sport. And then I entered the British bouldering championship can't even remember why to be honest because I hadn't done competitions in years and the last time I did a competition as a teenager I kind of decided I didn't want to do them really (laughs) and then I don't know I must have been climbing all right and someone suggested it oh oh someone I knew was doing it and I was like all right (laughs) and then I did quite well and I got on the British team and then it kind of went from there but because it had all happened through me doing this bouldering comp I ended up bouldering like now I look back and I'm like I should have done the lead rather than the bouldering because I think I'm I probably would have been a bit better at the league. Oh, really? I mean, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> um, <laughs> in the years when I did it, when it was a bit more basic, now when you have to like do a dyno halfway through a lead route, and that would just be game over. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting. I want to... Um, we started talking about some of your bouldering trips, talking about meeting in Joe's Valley and that... How long was it? Six-month trip or three-month trip you did three in the months, States? yeah. What were some of the other, what have been some of the other highlight trips? I know you've gone to South Africa a number of times. What oh, what yeah. trips really stand out for you, if any? My first Rocklands trip was amazing. Really, really amazing. First South Africa trip, partly because it was the first time there. So you're just like, was amazing. Um, it was also the trip that David and I got together, which was really cool. So it's obviously really special for me. And like I said, we've known each other for a while before that, but um that was a really special trip and actually trips back there since we've been back a few times but we spent a bunch of time in Cape Town as well and um, climbing on the peninsula um that was really 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 cool um but you know that three-month trip in America I still think of as one of the best trips we've had mm. it was just so good it was so much fun from a climbing perspective and also just like we met loads of cool people yourself included <laughs> and we went to lots of different places and our van was ace we got really really cold at the end because we stayed a bit too long in the van and we got like dumped with snow and we were like this sucks we're freezing which is all you Where know that's all you? part of a climbing trip right totally on our way back we were driving back from the valley where actually we got rained on a lot um back towards colorado and we stopped in carbondale it was our last night in the van and we were freezing <laughs> and i remember there was this like cafe diner thing that opened at six and we like crawled in at six o'clock being like please warm drinks 
please. We're so over this. You know, like towards the end of a long trip, you're often just like hungry and cold um, <laughs> just because that's what it does to you. <laughs> just all part of the experience, but I felt like we really got that on that trip. You know, you just like run out of supplies mm. and start to get really tired, cumulatively tired. Um, especially when you're younger and you haven't really planned things maybe as well as you could have done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what else are the, I mean, we did some bouldering in the Southeast. I was really impressed with that. Um, uh, the rock in the Southeast um, in the bouldering areas, absolutely amazing. Where specifically? Um, like Rocktown mm. and, um, oh gosh, what the, um LRC. Oh. LRC. Yeah, Little Rock City, Rocktown, yeah. and the other one called. Um, it's got that millipede boulder. I should know this. Horse pens. Horse pens. Horse pens. Horse I haven't. Pens I obviously haven't been. Yeah. Really good. Oh, you should get yourself there. I need to it's go. Amazing. It's one of the least. You know, one of the best things about going to America on a climbing trip, especially for Europeans, is the stable climate. Right. And is the what you get less the stable climate. The fact that ah. it doesn't just really. Uh-huh, like, uh-huh. I mean, desert climbing is like amazing. Right. It's dry and it's low humidity and it's kind of like that every day. So you probably see Europeans turn up and just exhaust themselves. <laughs> if that was the, you know, we don't get that weather here. So we're just like, must climb every day. Right. Um, we'll rest when it rains and then it never does. Exactly. Yeah. And then it never rains. And you're like, oh, right. <laughs> um, so I guess the only thing about the Southeast is that it can get more kind of wet weather and I remember people saying that to us when we were planning to go like oh the weather's not that good it was still probably like substantially better than UK weather (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I think it depends um, where your baseline that you're measuring from is but yeah you can get worse weather there but really really cool Um, and also actually I've I've had a couple of trips to the Red River Gorge and I really I really like sandstone so Mm. I think maybe I'm slightly biased um, but I really enjoyed the climbing there as well um, in the red. I wanted to ask you about specific bouldering accomplishments, if any projects or experiences with with climbs really stand out for you, whether that's just the amount of meaning you drew from an experience or lessons learned from it, etc. And you said something really interesting about 15 minutes ago, you were talking about this shift from being a project climber to wanting to do things quickly. And you said, probably because my outlook changed. Can you kind of give us the before and after? Like, what did you mean by that? What was your what was your outlook like when you were really going after hard things and how has that kind of evolved in time? Yeah, so I think I definitely, and I think this happened gradually over a few years. I got more and more, I want a different word, and I'm doing inverted commas here, like serious, <laughs> a little air um, commas, serious about climbing. And not to say that it wasn't fun anymore. It was always fun. And that's always been what's motivated me. But I got so psyched, basically, in about, you know, pushing and trying my hardest on things. And I really enjoyed that um, kind of adventure into into trying things that felt almost too hard, really. And um, And I think with that came not being very articulate here but I think I got a bit obsessive essentially and um I mean we've covered some of this on the recording that we did as a three with Hazel um about all the kind of red s stuff because that definitely played a part in it like I think I 
I overtrained and I also didn't eat enough for what my body, I was asking my body to do. And that became a bit of a spiral to a point where I realized I was um, struggling with relative energy deficiency. And then I had a whole recovery um, through that. And we've done a separate podcast, um, as I mentioned, about that. Um, but I think my attitude towards climbing and this kind of push, push, push mentality definitely played into that. And because I've been through that and come out the other side, I think understandably my outlook on climbing is somewhat different now because I basically think I've pushed myself too hard through love of it. So not, not for many, there was no like dark trying to prove myself to myself or feeling unworthy or anything like that. I just loved it. And I just did too much Mm. and I pushed too hard and I crashed and that crash came in the form of red S, but it also came in the form of, I guess, just a bit of general burnout. Um, and I can't get I, I can't get myself back into that headspace, nor do I really want to get back into quite the headspace that I was in. Like I'll always be psyched and I'll always love climbing. And I still have, you know, there's a certain amount that's just personality, right? Of how hard you try in the moment on a boulder problem or wanting to train and wanting to, you know be the best climber you can be but there was like a slight level up that I went to for a while in terms of obsession and I'm just not there anymore Mm. Mm -hmm. maybe because I'm older maybe because I have a family now and um so yeah does that kind of answer it it does I feel like it wasn't that articulate no that was (laughs) no it's no you that was great. I mean, I have a terrible habit of asking way too many questions at once. So I asked you like five questions and you you answered three of them, which is amazing. <laughs> I can always uh, circle back to the others. But no, that's that's so well said and it so resonates with me. And it's just so interesting how, yeah, I completely relate to that. And sometimes like I, I can simultaneously know that I'm in a healthier space psychologically now than I was in 2017 when I kind of hit one of my peaks in climbing, maybe my peak all time in in my climbing. And yet some part of me still longs for that. Like, I wonder if I'll find that again, you know, it's just strange how those things kind of coexist um, I remember that focus and that drive and the satisfaction I got out of feeling like I'm really doing everything I can to pursue this big goal or this this better version of myself that I can kind of envision. There's There's this purity in that that felt really, really good at the time. And yet, like you, I had to kind of go too far before I figured out where my sweet spot was. And it you know, I, I paid the price for it. I crashed in a similar way. I guess the the highs are amazing, aren't they? When you're in that headspace and you're climbing well and maybe you're like on your project and you're like having a flow moment and it's all really amazing. And you're so immersed in this experience and everything that's built up to that point and the community around you and everything. It's, it's amazing. But for me that kind of top top like pushing my top wasn't sustainable in the way that I was doing it at least yeah and I find I can still have 
like really incredible experiences. I mean, everything's changed loads for me now. So, and I feel like I haven't quite got back into any kind of normal yet. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 It's interesting. I, I find that, um, as far as just pure obsession, I mean, it, it might sound really ironic to say this, given that what I do, all of what I do is around climbing. I do this podcast and it's all about performance and getting better at climbing. And then I live on the road and climb all the time. So it might sound really funny to say this, but I am way less obsessive and in, in the weeds and just single-mindedly focused on climbing than I was a few years ago. And yet, I f and probably part of it is just constructing this lifestyle that's more conducive to improving at climbing by climbing outside all the time. But I feel like I'm getting 90 or more percent of the results from like a 50% as obsessed mindset. Can you relate to that at all? I, I find that just so interesting. Like I'm, I was kind of spinning my wheels in the mud almost, I think before just really pursuing that, those single digit percentage points, these little improvements that I thought would make all the difference and maybe turned out to be the wrong things to be focusing so much energy on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's the classic phrase of less is more a lot of the time, isn't it? And I, I totally think that, and I feel like I'm not quite, because I guess I've like blurred the lines by like having a baby. <laughs> so I'm kind of interested to see where I end up, you know, like in a year or two, um, where my performance ends up because I'm not climbing as hard as I was when I was spinning my wheels, so to speak. Mm. But I think I could be potentially um, in the future. I mean, who knows? But I don't care as much, mm. certainly. As long as I, I feel like so long as I can climb at a level where the climbing is interesting to me, that's fine. It doesn't have to be the same. You know, I can have as much fun on an 8A route as I can on an 8B plus route, so long as the climbing's interesting. I would struggle maybe to be as into it if I was climbing only on a 5 plus, mm. because with my level of experience, that would be a bit boring. Yeah. Um, what would a five plus be in Yosemite scale? Do you know oh, roughly? Gosh. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, I'll look it up. Maybe five, sorry. nine, five, ten, something like that. I know what, I know what, um, some of the higher ones. Same. Are. Yeah. It, it, I mean, <laughs> same. Yeah. Maybe it'd even be like five, seven or something. Oh, I don't okay. Know. Okay. Like, yeah. I, I was I was going right to the other end of the scale, really. Right, right. Very, very uh, easy. Yeah. Maybe five nine or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's not to say that a five nine can't be interesting. It, it's all about challenge level, isn't it? It's all about the challenge being at the appropriate level for your skill set. And that's what makes flow experience, but it's also what makes um things interesting and enjoyable. And is that the challenge is 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 appropriate, a good challenge level for you in that moment. Um and if your skill set changes, whether that, you know, it's like we get bored if things get too easy for us. So then we go and look for something harder, but you can do that on the way down as well. <laughs> you can look for something easier. That's a more appropriate challenge level. Cause to be honest right now, if I went on a 8C route, I'd probably be bored. Cause I'd just be like, I can't do any of the routes. <laughs> so, you know, like if you go too hard, it's also boring or disengaging. And if you go too easy for wherever you're at, it's disengaging. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know how I got onto that, but no, it's good. I think it's good news for all of us because you know we're all going to get old at some point, and we're all whatever, whether it's life circumstances or having a baby or injury or whatever else, we're always riding this kind of roller coaster of performance and ability. And I think it's it's just 
exciting to think that you can still find, and I've experienced this myself, like I've, I've had ups and downs and have still found satisfaction and challenge and different ways of challenging myself that are just as engaging as climbing at my best. So I think it's, it's exciting. It's good news to hear all that. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned flow a couple times already in this conversation. I know from reading your writing that that's a fascination of yours and you've really studied flow and flow state and how we get there. And I'd love to ask, and this ties into my previous question about boulders that your accomplishments that, that you're most proud of or that have been the most meaningful or that stick with you. Let's focus just on boulders first. What are some of those hardest ascents, those flow moments that really have stuck with you, those memories that have really stuck with you? I would say the majority that have really stuck with me as flow moments have been highball things because I think that added facet of going high above pads makes you, you know, you need to focus a hundred percent and you need to switch off your brain. And, um, and I, and you kind of, for me, at least I feel like I need to be in or as close to a flow experience as possible in order to, climb my best and be able to not get nervous and not get scared um so I think some of the the boulders that have meant the most to me or I've had those really positive experiences on have been higher things so for example I, I did a, a grit stone erect called careless talk in the peak district and that's probably one of my most proud ascents um weirdly because I think because I have this project kind of history of projecting more and this I've really enjoyed projecting over time it's not one of the things I've put the most time into I actually did careless talk quite quickly I did it in two sessions um so it, it often comes to mind as one of the things that I'm most proud of but it wasn't you know I, I think apart from that most of the things I'm most proud of are the things that I put a lot of time into but with careless it's so iconic it meant a lot to me in terms of kind of the history of British climbing and the Peak District. And um, I felt like I, I don't know, it meant a lot to me um, to do that climb and its kind of historic nature, but also being able to access that kind of flow state quicker than usual and, and ground up. Because oh, quite a lot wow. of the highball boulders I've done, I've done having practiced them on a rope first, but with Careless I didn't. Um, not because I have anything against it. Like I said, I've done that with other boulders just because basically on careless, the, the bottom bit is is the kind of physically hardest bit, like to get stood up on the erect. And then the actual top section, there's two different ways of doing it. It's certainly not easy. And I fell off it a few times, but it's not quite as hard as the bottom bit. So I didn't actually expect to get through the bottom bit. So the session that I started getting through the bo bottom, I was suddenly, you know, like, oh, right, this is on. I didn't have a rope with me <laughs> because I hadn't really like planned for that. Yeah. And, you know, probably if I hadn't done it that day, I might have gone and put a rope on and practiced the top so that the next time I got through the bottom bit, I might have, you know, known what I was doing a bit more. But I happened to do it that day. Um, but I'm, I guess that's one of my more proud ascents because I was able to keep it together in that kind of unknown territory, going high on something that I knew I really cared about. And, you know, grit conditions make a big difference. And it was a really good conditions day. And those are, can be few and far between. So that's an added pressure of like, 
I knew once I got through once and I got onto the top, I was like, I can do this, but am I going to do it? You know, do I have enough, enough goes and enough skin and you know, is it going to rain or, you know, all the rest of it. Um, so I was, it was like an execution thing that day. And I was, I was really pleased um, to have managed to execute mm-hmm. um, and do that boulder. But then I guess on other high balls sometimes, and this is the thing with head pointing, um, I guess, is that sometimes when you put a rope on something, you can almost be over-focused. And when you're, when you're going ground up, so my experience on careless was a, felt a little bit more freeform because I was having to feel a hold, interpret the body position, interpret what I felt with my, with my hands and my feet and, and kind of go with it go with the information that was coming in. When you practice something on a rope, yes, you're going high and you need to be in that kind of focused state still, but you know exactly how things are going to feel. You know exactly how you want a move to feel, how you want to hold a hold. So it's a little bit more, um, well, it's, it's a little bit different. Uh, Maybe kind of analytical? Place. Maybe more yeah, analytical? Yeah, a little bit analytical. Yeah, so if you hit a hold, not quite how you hit it when you were practicing on a rope you might be like oh crap oh that's not quite right oh do I carry on anyway you know you kind of then slip into the free form of like I'm interpreting all this new information can I still do it do I need to reverse or should I go for it anyway or there's this like hyper awareness of what you're doing um so yeah I feel like there's a subtle difference uh, when something's been practiced on a rope but they're also some of my um one that springs to mind is is I did Misery Chord in Fontainebleau. I don't know if you know it. It's mm-hmm. at Cuisinier. It's just this really cool arete. It's like 70 plus, so a V10, really cool arete. Again, quite high. I did do that, the top of that on a rope. Um, and I can still almost, you know, you get those like really sharp memories of catching certain holds. And I still have that for Misery Chord. I mean, it was like, gosh, it must have been 2000 and I don't actually know, maybe 2011, 12? 10 something somewhere around there so a long time ago you know like in the 10 year mark ago yeah um but i still kind of remember catching there's like a crimp a right hand crimp at the top and you get that kind of really zoomed in memory of how things felt and i feel like the boulders where i have those kinds of memories are the ones that really stick with me Mm. it's cool to hear you contrast those experiences and hear about careless and and how in, in that case, it wasn't a statement, it wasn't ethics, it wasn't, you were trying to like do it the way that it was done historically. It was just the logistics of, oh, I, I can do this today and my rope's not here. So I guess I'll just go ground up. But it's it's interesting to me how those, how these kind of arbitrary climbing games that we create do shape our experience and our memories and the fulfillment of an experience to such a great degree. And it's like, I've, I've had a lot of conversations about climbing with my parents now that I do the podcast and they listen to the show. And one thing I can tell that they don't quite understand is like, why would you ever do a riskier version of the thing? Like if you can climb it on a top rope, why would you lead a scary trad route? Or if you can climb it on a top rope, why would you, why would you ever go ground up on a boulder problem? Or why would you even try to climb the boulder with just pads and no rope? But it's, everything like it makes all the difference in the world as far as what happens in your body and your mind and just your experience of that climb and your story just just illuminates that difference in such a cool way it's really fun to hear that (laughs) 
Yeah. I mean, it's a really valid question, though, the one of your parents. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm like, it's like a it's, really valid question. I know it is. You were saying it, I was like, they've got a really good point. Why do we do that? And I feel that every time I, I talk with them about this, I'm like, <laughs> I really can't put it into words. I can't, I'm having a hard time explaining why there's a difference. But then hearing you tell that story, I'm like, ah, I can feel it. I felt that difference. Yeah. It's yeah, so okay. it's so cool to to completely get lost in the intuition, your body's intuition when you're going ground up on something and you're kind of in survival mode up there and you're just reacting to what the rock is giving you and I don't know. There's an intensity, isn't there? Yeah. There's an intensity that wouldn't be there if there was a top rope there. Mhm because you just wouldn't, it's like when you get run out, whether it's trad climbing or sport climbing, there's an intensity, there's adrenaline. There's, you know, you get a kind of rush and a buzz that if you weren't a little bit scared, you probably wouldn't get. And that is part of what makes it so addictive. Mm. What is it about, I don't know if this question will work. I'm just kind of winging it here, but it makes me wonder for you, as someone who's really looked into flow state and what that is and how to get there, why is it such an important thing having experienced it to want to experience it more? Like, is it just something that feels really good that we're addicted to? Cause I, I can relate to that. Like I've felt that a few times in my life and it's, and so many other athletes in adventure sports and things like that are always kind of chasing flow state. Do you have a perspective of why? Like, why is it? Why is it that we want that? I guess on a really basic level, those are some of the best experiences that you can have in your sport. So the reason that we all love, you know, we might not call it flow, but when you're having one of your best climbing experiences, the chances are you're having a kind of a flow state experience or for a lot of people that that will be um, what they're experiencing so it feels nice you you have this kind of yeah I get it's it's really hard to articulate it in this subject I think yeah um I think also it's almost like meditative so it's a it's a really empowering positive headspace to be in where you're so focused on something and it's really a positive learning experience as well, because you, you know, a lot of, when you talk about flow, you often talk about, you know, being more process focused and being able to, you know, I've talked to Hazel a bunch about this um, with her mental training stuff. So being able to be focused on learning and developing and being better at climbing rather than getting to the top of your route. Mm. So often when you're really outcome focused, that can take you out of the flow state and actually away from your best performance. So it's, it's kind of like a paradox, you know, to, to have your best performance and to increase the likelihood of topping out on your route or your boulder problem, you need to be less bothered about it <laughs> and focus on the process of how your hands feel on the hold, how, you know, you're breathing and, you know, all the things that, will contribute to having that kind of focused flow experience. Mm. Um, yeah. Something that just came to my mind as you were talking, it's, it's, I wonder if it's just almost this way of tapping into our most primal, the most primal parts of ourselves as humans. I, th I think 
that's some language that kind of resonates with me. And I don't know why that is such a positive thing, but it does feel like such a unique and positive and interesting experience to have in this modern environment where it's so easy to go through life just distracted all the time and in our in our consciousness, like in our um, very cerebral selves, you know, just being entertained and things like that. There's something really grounding and refreshing. And it's almost, you know, to your point about it being meditative, it's almost like this psychological reset in a way that just feels mm. really clean and, and really good. And like you say, it's not just meditative, it's like visceral, primal mm-hmm. kind of, you know, when, when people power scream when they're climbing, I mean, that's like really primal, isn't it? And I've definitely been in that headspace where you're like, you know, everything's out the window. You don't care about anything except holding on. <laughs> and that's like wonderfully liberating, isn't it? Yeah. Like how often in other areas of your life do you get to be that? Mm be that kind of free and expressive and kind of completely cut loose. I want to read something that you wrote many, many years ago, if that's okay. Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) What you're saying right now, I'd wanted to ask you about um, in an extension of our conversation that we've been having about these high balls and how those are some of the most meaningful. I wanted to ask you about some of the hardest boulders that you've done and which ones stand out as just proud accomplishments for their difficulty. And uh, I had remembered reading this. I just found this this morning because I was like, I think she wrote a really cool piece about that moment when you're so in the moment of the hard climb that everything else falls away and you really, really experience trying hard and just how profound that is and and how rare it is that we really tap into how hard we can try. So I want to read an excerpt from a blog post you wrote called Pushing It. And this is about your... I kind of remember this. Okay, okay, this is perfect. (laughs) I know how that goes because I I kept a blog for a long time when I was in my early 20s and uh, someone recently read some of that and asked me about it and I was like I I have no idea what you're talking about I'd have to go back <laughs> yeah. and read it but this is from um a write-up that you did about your ascent of the amphitheater which is a v12 in Rocklands uh, okay. yeah and the post is called pushing it and this is kind of from the middle this is just a paragraph you wrote I had fallen over 20 times on the last move over a handful of sessions including the one I was immersed in I felt like I had learned to fall there. It was part of my sequence now, and I didn't know how to combat it. But I really wanted to. Funny how some of life's best lessons are learned in moments of relative desperation. I don't know what was different on the go. I held the move. I don't remember much except that I experienced a sort of blank moment, and I heard a low guttural noise that I later realized had originated from somewhere deep within me. I had knocked down a barrier, mental and physical, and I knew it then. I felt a palpable growth in my potential just in that moment. I had accidentally found and understood something about myself and my limits, something precious and also overwhelming. I just, <laughs> I, I love that bit of writing. It's Sounds better in your voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. I almost, I almost asked you to read it because oh, I, no, because I, I love your, because I love your, your accent. So... <laughs> It sounds more like it could be in like a Hollywood movie. 
I think uh, a British vomit. accent can ruin a lot of things. <laughs> oh, you think so? That's so funny. No, I think Americans... Yeah, we lo- just don't sound very cool. No way. Cool. That's not true at all. Apart from to Americans who seem to think we sound cool. We do. Yeah. I think, so yeah, funny. it's just maybe a grass is greener thing. I don't know. But no, <laughs> I, I, th- I, love, I love British accents of all kinds. I think Brits among Americans, just we all sound like a bit nerdy <laughs> or something. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I always think of like Guy Ritchie films and like Jason Statham and, you know, okay, there, there's like yeah. this real just dry, cool, dark humor sort of thing that I, I really love. Oh, that's um, cool. So I just think like nerdy awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I love. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I, I I love it. I loved that bit of writing. I really liked that, and I just it made me curious to ask you, just I guess generally about some of those hardest climbs, the ones that are most meaningful that stand out. What are some of those? Well, actually, amphitheater that boulder. I mean, I remember that move when you were describing. That. I was like, ha, huh, yeah, I remember that move. I got so frustrated, and um, and I think when I finally did the move, like I really, I tried. So so hard on that move because I was so annoyed <laughs> with myself because I kept falling there. I was it was basically like born of frustration. And I I think I'd been doing that kind of, you know, get there, kind of go for it, but maybe not go for it quite as much as I could. And I'd have told you that I was going for it as much as I could, but I obviously wasn't. And then that one go I completely let rip and it worked. But I had another experience like that on, which is actually earlier chronologically. It was in, I think it was like 2010 in Switzerland on a boulder problem called Marilyn Monroe. Um, and again, it had this move that I, I could do on its own, but I couldn't do it from the start. And I kept falling there. And that was the first time I think I made any kind of noise climbing. Like, I think I was quite a silent climber before that. And I remember doing, finally doing that move. And and I don't, the noise was really like, really low and like growly. Um, Not like a cool power screen. (laughs) Kind of like, you know, like if if you'd been there and been watching, you'd be like, ooh, what was that? (laughs) Um, But I remember that as well. I guess it's quite similar to the the amphitheater kind of story. But I guess there's been a few moments like that where I've realised that I could try harder than I thought I could try. And then I think from kind of that period of time, because they're probably similar-ish period of time, I learned that and I took it to other boulder problems and I took it to other routes and stuff. Mm. And that became something that I really, really enjoyed. And I think that's why I gravitated more towards that, like what for me was top end, you know, project mentality stuff, because I really liked trying that hard. But I think that try hard probably also led me down the kind of red S thing as well. Yeah, yeah. So, because I I tried that hard, you know, I, I was like, right, cool. I can try that hard all the time. I can try that hard with, with my diet, with my training, with my, with my everything. Yeah. yeah. And I think I just totally burnt myself out. So it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's a really useful thing. And I think it's, it's also really fun to try that hard. Mm. But lesson learned, you can't do it all the time. Yeah, that resonates with me big time. I'm I've become a lot more fascinated with this kind of yin and yang because I've realized, especially in the last few years, that I'm just terrible at turning it off. And I can I can like you know my, my life objectively is way less physically 
uh, I, I'm like putting out a lot less physical output these days than I did four years ago when I was kind of falling down my own rabbit hole of Red S. But um, I just pivot to other things, you know, like I put that same energy into the podcast and I have a really hard time turning my brain off at night when it's time to just relax and go to bed. I'm like, I'll just check email one more time or I'll just like look at the analytics one more time or I'll just check my calendar and see who's, what do, what do I need to do? Everything feels like a to-do list item and it can't be healthy. You know, I think it's, it's a really positive trait in a way, but um, like you're saying, we can't do it all the time. And I, I'm really realizing that a goal for myself needs to be to practice the, the yin and yang mm. and distilling that try hard and focus in those moments when it really matters, you know, bringing my full attention to a conversation like this, but then not like letting it stress me out in the days leading up to it. You know, like I don't have to think about it all the time. I don't have to always be getting back to everyone that messages me right that moment that they do and, and things like that. Mm. And there'll always be another email. I know, exactly. So it's not like you can get to the bottom of the pile. You really can't, can you? <laughs> you really I used no, to love elusive. I used to love inbox zero, but I, I find it just totally impossible these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you about some of your hardest boulders. How hard was Marilyn Monroe? Mm, eight A. Eight A. Uh, so okay. V eleven. V eleven. And you've done some V thirteens. I've done one V13 okay. that may have been downgraded, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. It was called Pursuit of Happiness. In, it was on the Cape Peninsula in South Africa. Um, it originally got given V13. And then I don't know what it's leveled out at, to be honest. When I did it, Jimmy Webb had just done it and suggested V12. But it was still kind of considered V13 because I think everyone that had done it up until that point had said V13. And I mean, it's like a compression prowse if anyone's going to downgrade it, right? Right. Um, <laughs> it's going to be Jimmy. Yeah, and he might have lost perspective actually, on that grade range. He was there when I did it. He was like um, cheering me on and spotting. And um, yeah, so he was he was great, really helpful. Helped me with beta and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, but he's definitely like a compression hero, right? So um <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was my only V thirteen. I did a bunch of V twelves, um, but yeah, that was my my one V thirteen. Although I think again, when I did I thought you'd done the vice. Am I misremembering that? No, no, I'd fallen off the vice a lot. Uh, okay, but I've never done it. Okay, no, I tried that a bunch um, over a couple of trips. Actually, great problem. Really enjoyed trying it, but it, it was just that little bit too hard for me. Mm. Um, but it's quite power endurancey, so I think those ones can lure you in because you're like, I totally, I could do it in two massive overlapping halves. <laughs> Surely I'll just do it. But no, maybe I'll go back to that one day. <laughs> well, I was going to ask that. So, of these hardest things, and you know, your, your comment earlier about having loads of unfinished business, some of them still feel open and some feel like, no, I've, I've crossed that off my list. Mm. Do you have any boulder problems out there that you would still love to revisit or, or goals that you haven't even tried yet? Um, you know, inspiring climbs. I have lots of boulders that I've tried in the last couple of years or something that I'd like to go back to and finish. Um, in terms of like long standing ones, like things like the vice, that was something that I put time into over a couple of trips. I didn't do it. I had a trip where I really thought I was going to do it and then I didn't do it. And I haven't been back on it since. I don't know. To be honest, I don't think about it. It's not something that like burns 
<laughs> burns at night. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh, the vice. Um, but, you know, if I found myself back in Rocklands on a bouldering trip, which I would love to find myself back in Rocklands <laughs> on a bouldering trip. Um, and, you know, I can imagine that'd be a really cool place to go as a family um, when Isaac's a little bit older. Um, and if I was in that level of shape, then potentially, but I don't know if I would necessarily try that over just trying new stuff. Mm. Um, and otherwise, bouldering wise, just off the cuff, I can't really think of others apart from more recent things. Like there's a thing down in Devon that I tried just before I was pregnant with Isaac that I'd like to go and finish off. It's like a sphere 11, really cool thing. Um, I actually had my best go when I was six weeks pregnant. Wow. <laughs> um, but I uh, didn't do it. And I was like, hmm. And then that season ended. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's not going to happen for a while. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. In terms of like longer death bouldering, not so much. I think feel like most of my unfinished business are, are roots. Mm. And they're things like I tried, um, I had just one trip actually. So I only tried it for a couple of weeks, but it's an amazing route. Um, just do it in Smith Rock. I would love to go back on that. That's probably my number one. I would love. To no way. That route. Do you know, yeah. do you know that I've talked about that route on the show that I have like, I mean, I have no history with it whatsoever. I've only, I've only tried the, uh, like the eight B pitch. Um, mm-hmm. I climbed it with uh, with Ted Kingsnorth, actually. I think probably... Yeah, that's who I had the trip with. Yeah, yeah. It was like right <laughs> was around there, the same yeah. time. I belayed him one day back there. But that is like at the very top of my long-term goals. Like that is like where I want to focus and direct all of my improvement is towards... That's like the pinnacle for me is is doing that route someday. Ah, me too. Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> tell you what, you work on your climbing that end. I will drag myself out of this postpartum situation and we can meet at the bottom of uh, <laughs> of uh, that route at some point. I love it. Yes. Because at some point, you know, I'm for some reason married a boulderer. So <laughs> I slightly screwed myself over. And, well, you um, were quite a boulderer yourself at the time, I believe. Yeah. I was. And, you know, blessing me as other things going for him. And uh, <laughs> And uh, so I imagine at some point I'll manage to wangle my way back to Smith Rock, you know, under cover of, say, like a Leavenworth bouldering trip. Um, <laughs> that's perfect. Because like, oh, that's Smith Rock's just, uh, I'll just try and turn up, you know, casually in 8C plus shape. <laughs> See how that works out. Uh-huh. And then I know who to call. Yes. Yes. I will change my plans. I will like totally rewrite my plans to make that happen so yes yes do reach out when the time comes i also love leavenworth i grew up 30 minutes from leavenworth and that's like one of my favorite places on the planet and i've kind of never been and it's like top of one of our places that we'd um, like to go oh you'll love it you'll love it Uh, you know similar to joe's valley i think it really thrives in that like v10 to 12 range Mm -hmm. so i think you and david would i mean there's plenty of really good stuff you know on either either ends um, but I think you and David would love it. I think you'd have a great time. Mm, that that yeah. would be really cool. And it's near Smith Rock. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of, in America terms. Exactly, exactly. I always find that funny. Like, I'm like, well, that's actually quite quite a ways away. But but yeah, people traveling from other places are like, it's only a six-hour drive. That's nothing. You know, they'll they'll drive 20 hours to get to their project or whatever. Also, if you're coming from England... You know, you've done the bulk of the travel in getting 
to that part of the US. Mm. And then, you know, it's not that far, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, exactly. So I selfishly would love to ask you a bunch of questions about Just Do It and your experience with it. But let's yeah. uh, let's save that for just a few minutes. And I wanted to ask you, what led to that transition into sport climbing? What caused you to, what sparked your curiosity or caused you to want to change focus? Um, well, I sport climbed as a teenager. So it wasn't like I always just bouldered and then I suddenly switched to sport climbing and I'd never done it before. Um, I was, um, like we talked about earlier, I did both as a teenager, as a young climber. And then... And I would say I was quite even, you know, like I enjoyed both. So I, I definitely had like a bit of a, you know, like my body remembered how to be a little bit fit at climbing. It wasn't like, you know, I'd only ever bouldered and then um, moved on to sport climbing. And I've always done better on boulders that are more power endurance as well, rather than like pure power um, or, you know, pure strength boulders. So it seemed like a fairly natural progression I, I honestly think it was something as simple as at that time of year in the UK the it was route climbing season mm. and I tried a route and I think one of the first routes harder routes that I did when I started route climbing a bit more was uh, Mecca at um, Raventor and again it's like quite short it's very much a boulderer's route you know quite power endurance crimpy thing and then I had a really fun experience trying that so then I tried another route and you know got into when I was in the UK on in the kind of route climbing season, I uh, I just started to um, do do more routes. I think it was also around the time I quit competitions because I I was bouldering outside, doing bouldering trips. I wanted to route climb, and then I was doing these comps, and I felt like I couldn't do all three well. Mm. And at that point, I was like kind of over it with comps and I remember thinking well if I don't do comps I've got way more time to root climb and boulder outside rather than and and to kind of train for those things because comps were starting to get to the point where you couldn't just be a good outdoor climber and go to a comp and do well you had to train for comps because they were like this totally weird and wonderful different thing and I didn't necessarily want to spend the training time on something that wasn't going to also benefit the other things I was interested in. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. So it's kind of like a few things and a bit of a kind of natural shift. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How hard is Mecca? Remind me. Um, 8B plus. So. Okay. 14A. That's the, uh, 14A. Yeah. yeah. And then you did Mecca extension as well, right? Yeah. 8C. Yeah, so 14B. 8C. Yeah. Yeah. Is that your hardest route to date? Um, I mean, technically I haven't climbed harder than eight C, but I feel like I've done harder eight C's if that makes okay. sense. Okay. Okay. So I've done a few eight C's. Um, so a few, what was it? 14 B? B. 14 yep. B's. Mm -hmm. A few 14 B's. Um, of which I don't think Mecca extension. That was my first. So okay. That was more of like a, my, maybe my entry level 14 B. And I've done a few others. Um, yeah. That have felt harder. What was the one that you that was so long and so much time on the wall that you ended up putting like red vines or Twizzlers or some sort of candy <laughs> in your sports bra. <laughs> that actually wasn't an eight C that was a route. It was a bit easier. It was a eight B, which is what for 13, 13 D. Yep. 13 D. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just really long. So it was like the whole length of Malon Cove, which is a crag, a UK crag. So oh, that was great. That, again, that's one of my like favorite routes actually that I did. It's called Totally Free. 
totally free too. And it climbs a really classic 8A plus route, um, single pitch, but reasonably long. So like 30, ooh, I want to say 30, 35 meter pitch. Someone's probably going to tell me I'm wrong on that. Um, called The Groove, which is a really classic, amazing 8A plus route at Malham. And then you get this quite good rest. And then you do, essentially, it's like three pitches, but you can do it as one ah. um, one push. Um and it's, yeah, it's really, really cool. Really, really cool. And you get to like top out the crag and drop your rope and stuff and like walk back down. <laughs> wow. How long is the full thing, you think? Uh, I think it's 70 meters. 70 I would have meters. To wow. To be, I feel like I might be wrong there, but I think okay. it's 70. Okay. Um, so, I, I mean, ball, ballpark 200, 220 feet, something that's yeah, that's a big. massive pitch yeah so i used two ropes actually because the first time i tried to do it on one yeah no it must be about 70 because i tried to do it on a single 80 meter rope and there was just way t- it was long enough but there was way too much drag at the ah. top so i kind of got like really stuck on drag because it goes through this roof at the top so then when i actually did the route i set off um from the ground with tied into two ropes just trailing one and being belayed on one. And when I got to the top of the first pitch, which is kind of half the distance because the next two are smaller, I clipped the rope that I dragged, that I just trailed into, you know, two or three points and then dropped, like untied, because you can stand on this like little ledge and like okay. untied. I mean, I was like untying with one hand. It wasn't like a hands off. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> and dropped, obviously made sure that I had a belayer on the other one. Sure. <laughs> dropped one rope, yeah. had a little sweetie snack and cracked on. Yeah, so so elaborate on that. Can, where did the? I'm sure the, it may have probably made no difference. It was probably total placebo. You think so? But, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but, glycogen, um, like I don't know. It kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. There's 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 no reason why it wouldn't. But um, basically, because the first time, like I said, I got kind of a little bit stuck with rope drag, but it wasn't just rope drag. I was also just like totally boxed, and. I remember I basically fell off pretty much mantling the crag, you know, like right at the top on like the last move. And I remember just being like, oh gosh, I've got to climb that whole thing again. Even though it's wonderful, it was, you know, mentally I was just like, oh gosh. How long do you think it took you? Like how long were you on the route? Oh, do you know, I'm not sure. It must have been quite a while. must have been an hour. Yeah. I, I think probably, yeah. Yeah, okay. And um, I remember falling off and just being like, no, I'm not trying it again. I can't possibly, no. <laughs> and then, you know, a few hours later being like, okay, I'll have another go. Like, And I think I went back like three days later. And But then I think I went back with the mentality of like, I am doing it today because I'm not, I'm not going to fall off the top again. And so I think, you know, the first time I got a bit cold. So this time I had like a headband on and like a thermal. And I had, I was like, maybe I was running out of, energy and I just needed some sugar so I stuck sweets down my bra so I could like <laughs> snack my way up the route and I did the rope thing you know so there was no rope drag. you know like I tried to cover all eventualities because I really didn't want to fall off the top again and I didn't so that was and good. it worked I'm sure sure it was the sweets <laughs> <laughs> what did you what did you choose you remember was there a specific sweet that yeah there were best? pencil sweets I think like strawberry pencil sweets I mean, it was just actually what was in the shop, but I, you know, kind of like strawberry laces, that kind of thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But they were pencils. <laughs> but I chopped them up into little, into the internet because they were long. You know, like okay. you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to be like halfway up a route and have like a really cloy mouth, do you? Right. Um, 
so I like made them into little bite-sized bits so it wasn't overwhelming that my plan was to just like drip feed my system uh-huh, it wasn't like I got uh-huh. to like the last few moves and like smashed loads of sugar <laughs> I tried to drip feed it um as it went up <laughs> I love it I remember when um you did a write-up about this, I think. I remember reading that and thinking, like, I was I was picturing the pencil sweets because they're kind of like red vines for us or Twizzlers for us in the States. I imagined you, like, stuffing them into your bra in such a way that you could be climbing with two hands on the wall and, like, eating them, like, <laughs> like tucking your chin down and, <laughs> and biting little bits or eating them. But it sounds like... No, that, no. Yeah. I, okay. I just I just took them out. Sorry to be boring, but no, I just I used my hand. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember thinking at the time, like, there's not that many times as, as a, a sporting woman that you can be like, this is this works as a woman better than it would as a, as a man. Like, where are you going to put your pencil sweets <laughs> that are accessible? You know, actually wearing a sports bra is really handy. Yeah. Um, Damn. Because your pockets are kind of in the way of your harness. Um, you know, T-shirts generally. I suppose some T-shirts have little pockets, don't they? You yeah, yeah. You have to get a, has a little pocket, a nerdy T-shirt with a pocket. little, a little breast pocket. Yeah. yeah. Or I don't know, strap <laughs> them to your wrist or something. I was like, sports bra is perfect. <laughs> Amazing. I wanted to ask you this. I'm, I'm always interested because it resonates with my experience. I like started in bouldering. I think, I think I, I don't know if you feel this way, but I think I am more genetically. Um, I have a stronger genetic disposition to be good at bouldering than I do for sport climbing. I think that's just like the deck okay. of cards that I was dealt. And not I don't want to sell myself short. I think I have way more potential with sport climbing. But, you know, we're all built a certain way, etc. And I wanted to ask you, having excelled so much in bouldering before coming back to sport climbing, you know, climbing at a V12, V13 level, what were some of the biggest challenges or sticking points in reaching 14B, reaching that 8C level, making the transition back to sport climbing? And also what helped the most with those things? Okay. So making the transition was probably, you know, like, because I'd spent so much time bouldering. I actually think I'm the opposite to you. Like, mm. I'm probably I'm physically more suited to root climbing than I am to bouldering. I've always found it hard to build any bulk muscle wise. Um, I struggle more with like strength and power. So I think that's been my, you know, like I think from a bouldering perspective, I've got good like contact strength and technique and I don't know, obviously I'm not weak, like super weak or anything, but I've struggled to, I struggle to build like that burl. Whereas getting fit has usually come more easily to me. Um, so I tend to, even when I'm training for sport climbing, a lot of that is bouldering training because that's what I need to keep topped up. My strength goes a lot quicker than, than my fitness. Having said that, when I've been bouldering predominantly for quite a few years and then I wanted to do some routes, I really had lost a lot of that fitness. You know, I had quite good power endurance, but um, not that kind of base aerobic fitness. And I really that's something I, I put some time into. And I, I remember actually it was, um, I think it was actually before the days of lattice training being a thing. Um, or maybe it was at the beginning when he, when Tom, maybe before Tom and Ollie joined forces and it was just Tom and um, Randall. And he, he did me like a bit of a, a plan to a training plan for getting fit. And I was suddenly doing this like aerobic capacity work that I'd 
never done before. And I remember thinking this man is trying to kill me <laughs> through climbing moves because it was just like so much time on, you know, low intensity, but just, you know, a lot of time on the wall um, to build kind of a, that aerobic capacity base. And um, Can we zoom yeah. in on that a little bit? Can you give me a little yeah. bit more of the details, like paint a little bit more of a picture of that like were you doing it every day for hours and hours or what what did that look like at the time it probably wasn't every day for an hours and hours but it kind of feels like it <laughs> yeah. i just remember feeling really really tired that yeah. kind of drained tired that you only get from endurance work that you you know because when you're when you're bouldering and doing strength-based stuff you get to a point where you can't do the strength-based exercises anymore or you power out but you know with endurance you can always eke out one more move mm-hmm. um especially with like low level lower level lower intensity um error cap work because the idea is it's low intensity so you're you're maintaining a very low pump level but potentially for quite a long time which is extremely draining um yeah so i feel like i just spent a lot of time on the wall doing kind of easier circuits and just building building a base level of fitness um but it really um, paid dividends. Mm. And now I still do periods of time where I do more aero cap work. Um, but I can dip in and out of it a bit more now. But I felt like at the beginning, I really had to put a bit of time in. I'm pretty sure it was for Mecca extension because I don't think I did it for Mecca because Mecca was more power endurancy, Okay, I think. But I think it was when I started trying the extension because you essentially do an 8B plus route and then you get a really good rest. But it's a, you know, a jug on a... Um, on a wall not super steep um but you've got to be able to recover on a jug Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which back then i couldn't you know i needed to recover basically lying face down on the floor if possible (laughs) because i was a boulderer um and suddenly you're like oh right i've got to recover on the wall and then do this you know another section of of challenging climbing um so it's that ability to recover whilst you're on the wall um but now i find i can can kind of dip in and out of it a bit more like i haven't done that kind of stuff for a while and i'll probably do some soon just to kind of top up okay i'm curious about that so if you were going to dip into it again and top up your aerobic capacity would you focus on that to the exclusion of other types of climbing or would you do you integrate that with other strength training and bouldering and things like that so for me now, I would integrate it. Back then, when I really didn't have much at all, I remember thinking I had to almost get weak to get fit. I mean, okay. not intentionally get weak, but a byproduct of getting fit was that I had to, or at least that was my the thinking at the time, was that I needed to put so much attention into getting fit that as a byproduct, I got kind of weak. And then once I established that fitness, I kind of brought back in the strength stuff. Mm. Because to do that level of fitness work you can't really do good quality strength work alongside it because you're too tired, right? right? So you can't hit those high intensities as well. And so I just focused, it was more periodized then. I was doing kind of more block periodized training. Whereas I feel like once you're not trying to make, say, um, a huge leap in one area, you're trying to bring everything up together. um, I feel like I can kind of do a bit more concurrent Mm. um, training. Yeah. That makes sense. Do you remember how long that block was, that initial block with Tom when you were really oh, rebuilding Oh, I don't that? remember. Sorry. Okay. I'd, I'd be guessing. Yeah. Um, I feel like maybe like a few months. Okay. Like two or three months. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I wasn't coming from zero, zero because I sport climbed when I was younger. Um, I feel like it was 
two, three months, but I might be wrong. Okay, cool. Um, I want to ask you, as someone who has traveled as much as you have, you know, that first impression of meeting you and David and seeing how strong you guys were and how many hard things you were climbing on this on this trip to Joe's Valley, having tr- traveled to all these different areas, I want to ask you this about bouldering and then about sport climbing as well, but you're a very analytical person. You also interview people now. You have your own podcast. I'm always interested in kind of trends and themes, and I wonder if you have been able to kind of notice or synthesize any trends or themes in high-level performers. And I'd love to ask, as far as, let's take bouldering first, are there any characteristics that you've seen again and again in high-level boulderers that separate them from everyone else? Um, yeah, I think tactics are a big thing that you see high-level boulderers are really good at. And that's actually something that I've learned a lot from David has really good tactics and I've definitely got a lot better um, over the years from climbing with him. You know, just like paying attention to the details when you're trying something and not wasting energy. So again, it's quite an analytical way of, of approaching something. And I think when you see someone climbing in that way or, or approaching a boulder in that way, it's quite subtle. But once you notice it, you start noticing other people doing it or noticing when people aren't doing it. Um, so things like being kind of structured in the way that you approach a boulder problem. So rather than just, you know, sometimes you see people just like pulling on from the bottom of a boulder problem and trying it from the start every time. I mean, that's a kind of crude example because I think for a lot of people listening, they'll be like, well, obviously that's not a good idea. But because, you know, you don't know what's coming and, you know, obviously if you're trying to flash something, that is how you do it. But if you're trying to work something at your limit, it might be more sensible to say, do the top out or, you know, obviously make sure you've warmed up well, but then like you do the top out and then you maybe work it backwards and you, or you try the first couple of moves and then you step off and then you try the next couple and and you slowly piece it together like a jigsaw puzzle, do a couple of overlapping halves, have a decent rest. And, you know, so have this kind of, um, I guess, logical approach to something, a tactical approach. Um, Whereas you do definitely see people just throwing themselves at boulders, not resting enough, not dialing in a move and then being like, oh, I nearly did that move. Cool, I'll just go from the bottom and then they Mm. fall on that move all the time. And you're like, well, you could kind of see that happening. So it's that, it's analytical and kind of, there's a word that I'm I'm wanting, (laughs) I can't find it. like maybe I just mean tactical approach. A strategic, yeah. A strategic, yeah, exactly. Um, and things like knowing exactly where you're going to hit the hole. So perhaps you use tick marks, but actually good tick marks. They're not bad tick marks <laughs> that people put on. They're just like, I mark, and I'm like, you marked somewhere near the hold. Mm-hmm. Or like they put a tick mark to the middle of the hold. And you're like, okay, great. So like which finger are you aiming to hit with that mm. tick mark? Yeah. And they're like, oh, it's just the middle of the hold. Okay, but put your hand on it. Like, where do you want to hold that? If this is the crux move for you and it's really hard, you want to get that hold perfectly. So I tend to use goalpost tick marks or a single, if I do a single tick marks, it'll be for my index finger. That throws people because they often think it's the middle of the hold. So I often have to tell people like I index ticks. So, oh, that's, um, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I feel like that, at least in my experience, the people I climb with, that's kind of the, th- that feels like the most common. Like if you see a tick mark, oh, really? I, okay. I usually assume it's index finger. Yeah. Oh, see, I feel like I see a lot of people ticking the middle of a hold. Also that, also that. There's also a lot of really yeah. sloppy 
generic tick marks that are like, okay, yeah, there's the hold, but. I think I feel like there's a lot of intentional middle of the hold as well, though. Okay. Maybe people haven't thought to do anyway. Yeah, so I yeah. tend to do index and or, you know, if it's really accurate, I'll do the little finger one as well. So mm. you've got these kind of goalposts to go for. And things like going over your sequence in your head, you know, taking the time essentially to really think through what you need to do. And then usually that that will kind of fuel you being able to execute. And I think that's something that you see top level climbers are really good at. And there's also a confidence to that as well. Like some people you see, they work out a boulder, they're analytical about it, they're tactical about it. They don't spend any more energy than they need to. And then they sit down and they do the boulder first go. Mm. And yes, you know, oftentimes maybe they're overstrong on the boulder, but sometimes, you know, you see people doing that on stuff that is at their limit and it's because they've been tactical Mm. and because they're, they're also, there's also, I think a certain confidence of people sometimes when, you know, you've done all the moves, you know, you've planned everything, you know, where you're going to hit all the holes. And so you have a bit of a confidence to like sit down and just do it. You talked about David being really good at this and you having learned from him. Um, mm-hmm. Anything specific for you? Like, are there any things that have really helped your own approach, your own bouldering, your own tactics that you've seen from David or learned from David that stand yes, out? I got a lot better at doing accurate tick marks from okay. him. Um, I think I was probably a sloppy tick mark person before. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and... And resting enough as well, because I tend to get a bit, you know, like um, just enjoying myself and I get a bit like overzealous and maybe don't rest enough because I'm like, I want to have another go. Um, So like taking long enough rest, making sure I know what I'm doing on things. Yeah. And he like he's he's not lazy as well. Like I probably have a tendency to be more lazy with things, but he's very like he'll take the time to say put a rope down something and brush the holes and put some tick marks on it and Mm. you know if if that's the way that he's trying a boulder he'll take the time to do that or walk around and you know scamper down a boulder to check out the top out and put some chalk on the top out and look at whereas I'll just be like oh the top kind of looks all right I'll figure (laughs) out when I get there (laughs) which sometimes works and sometimes you're like oh I just fell off the top Uh, I should have I should have not been so lazy Um, right right he's got a real like attention to detail um that has definitely rubbed off on me and you know putting like little dot tick marks which obviously we always rub off afterwards um like little dot tick marks on footholds so that you know you might be like oh i know where the foothold is but when they're really small smears sometimes that split second when you're searching for a foothold a little tick mark will make the difference between you taking two seconds or half a second to put Mm -hmm. your foot on it Mm -hmm. um Although, kind of slight segue, but funny story, that um, for quite a long time, well, it was, I think it was actually on that America trip, we were driving and I kept thinking, David's kind of you know changing lanes a bit late and stuff, you know, I like could see the sign to where we were going and be like, okay, but not wanting to be a backseat driver, like wouldn't say anything. And then I remember one time being like, you know, you need to be in the right hand lane because, you know, and then he, I started watching him and realizing that he wasn't registering some of the signs quite as soon as I was. Um, basically, we went and got his eyes tested, <laughs> realised that he was slightly <laughs> short-sighted. And then we were like talking about it. We were like, I wonder if that's why he got so good at tick marks. Oh, because funny. actually he just can't see his footholds very well without little tick marks on them. I mean, he's not super short-sighted, but right. he has worn driving glasses since. And um, 
And he actually got contact lenses to try and, you know, and he said he could see way better with contact, but he found them too annoying. So he actually doesn't climb with any visual oh. aid. Um, but he still uses tick marks quite a lot for like little <laughs> holes. <laughs> so that actually might just be where it comes from. That makes perfect sense. I mean, it still helps whether whether you have 20-20 vision or not. I mean, yeah, I think tick marking is a skill and it really helps. It's interesting what you said about learning to rest more between tries. I've I've just kind of was reminded of this yesterday because it's been a while since I've tried a really hard boulder for me. I've been maybe for the past six weeks just kind of like in a little bit more of a fun maintenance range, doing things I can do quickly. Mm-hmm. And yesterday I was trying something hard for me and I, re- I just was reminded just one more time. Okay, I have to le- learn this lesson that I've learned before just one more time where I'm really good at resting in tactics once I have my head around the boulder and all the moves. But I wonder if you can relate to this. Like once when I'm in that early stage of discovery and trying beta and trying to move a bunch of different ways, that's when I'm terrible. I'll just rapid fire and, you know, like, like try the, ah, no, I need to hold it differently. I'll try this. I'll try this. I'll try this. I'll try that move. Once I have all the moves done and I start doing links and stuff, that's when my tactics really click in. But I, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 I'm exactly the same. Yeah. It's really hard not to, not to be kind of frantic or not even frantic is the wrong word, but just, it's really hard to have the presence of mind to step back and say, I actually need a rest from trying this little section or, I mean, sometimes it's just one move. So you kind yeah. of think, oh, maybe I don't need that rest, but you absolutely do. Right, right. You don't feel it. You don't feel tired. You don't feel powered down. But if you're rapid firing a move 20 times in a row and it's the crux, <laughs> you know, you probably are. you're probably tired. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, I really, I was climbing with someone else yesterday who was doing that better than I was. Like he was also discovering moves and trying new beta but just taking his shoes off more, taking longer rest between tries. Yeah, it was just a good reminder. Like, oh, yeah, okay, that's important too. <laughs> I need to employ the tactics from stage one, not just once I'm trying to red point or things like that. I wanted to ask you the same question, but for sport climbing, because you've also now climbed with such good sport climbers. I know you climb with Steve McClure sometimes. There's just so many strong climbers climbing at Malum Cove and these other areas nearby. What are some of the characteristics or things that really set those high-level sport climbers apart from everyone else? Is there anything anything different? Um, I mean, I think some of the same stuff probably applies, but just obviously in a sport climbing context. So that same, you know, not, and people are different with the way that they do it. Like I have a friend who will do like, you know, he'll do a route from like the first bolt to the top, you know, that kind of link, because then when he sets off from the ground, he's really like, I know I can do this route. But for me, I, I really struggle with that. I need some, ex- I need a bit more like the thrill of the red point. Mm. Um, I, I don't like to do too big links because <laughs> it takes like, some of the excitement away from me. Um, and also it feels a bit like an anti, I almost feel like I, you know, obviously you haven't done the route, but it feels a bit like you've done the route if you've done it minus four moves or something. Right, right, um, right. Yeah, that kind of, so I think people sit in different places on that, but yeah, doing sensible links, um, especially, you know, you almost have to be more careful of conserving energy in some ways on on route climbs, um, whether it's being sensible and saying, okay, it's a really long pitch, I'm going to work the first half this to go up and then I'm going to 
you know, jug up the rope and work the second half or something like that. Um, one of the really nice things I've found with the sport climbing community is that, and I get, you get this in bouldering as well, but lots and lots of chat about how to approach things because every route's different, just like every boulder problem's different. And there might be, you know, some of the, the turning points I've had with routes have often not been my idea. It's been someone at the crag has been like, oh, why don't you try this? Or I've noticed that like I, I did this route in, um, in Norway called Nordic Plumber. And it's a really long route through the Flatanger cave. And someone I kept falling off the end. And there's this like rail at the end of the route. And I kept falling off it. And um, someone said to me, you know, it's just taking you a long time to get there because it's a really long route. And there's quite a few like knee bar rests along the way. And I kept like resting at them for quite a long time and, you know, fully recovering. And then so I was trying to get there really recovered. But they were like, maybe you just need to get there quicker like to this finishing red point crux at the end. So I think I was, I must've been on for like at least an hour or something. Mm. And they were like, why don't you just rest enough to do the next section and then rest enough to do the red next section, not fully recover. It was almost over recovering. Mm. And so that you can actually get to the crux, maybe, you know, five or 10 minutes earlier. <laughs> and you'd actually, wow. be, you know, your, your time under tension then is just less. And um, that was a really big turning point for me doing that route. And I'm, I can't actually remember who it was, but it definitely wasn't my idea. Hmm. And so I think that community thing is um, slight segue. It's not really answering your question, but that's, um, that's great. I think that's something that you see a lot in, I guess, maybe top level climbers is everyone's talking about each other's roots and giving people feedback and saying, oh, what about this? And what about that? And and sharing ideas. And that's one of the nice, really nice things about climbing, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I love that example. That's that's a perfect example. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And I think it's really interesting. What just came to mind for me is I've observed this a lot with not new climbers, but climbers that are maybe moderate, starting to kind of break into harder things for them, not really anywhere close to exploring their full potential, but just starting to dabble in red pointing and harder climbing, where they almost you get the sense that they almost feel like they're cheating if they don't just stick with the very first beta or the very first idea that they had. It's like, no, this is the challenge I set for myself and I want to be strong enough to do it this way. And it's mm. like, oh man, I don't know, look around. Like no one else is doing that. The people that are climbing really hard are taking every bit of advice and trying every idea that they can to make the thing as easy as possible. And like, mm. that is the skill of red pointing. I mean, that's like at the very heart of it. So I always find that really interesting. It's like, do you really have to do it with bad beta? Are you, are you going to feel better about yourself if you do it with bad beta? You can always do a harder route later if you want a harder yeah. challenge. <laughs> totally. And climbing isn't yeah. just about being fit and strong. It's about being clever and creative. Mm. And that's what makes it such an interesting sport, I think. Like, you could be really, really strong. And you see people that are really, really strong, but they maybe can't work out the best pizza or they can't, you know, find the, you know, the plumb line uh, position to, to do a move or, or whatever it is. There's so many different facets that make someone a good climber. And yeah, I think it's a shame to ignore one of them or mm -hmm. any of them. So uh, returning to unfinished business, um, now let's talk about that with sport climbing. I have rain shadow. I just have the word rain shadow written oh. down here on my list. <laughs> That's one of the ones I've drawn a line under. Okay, really? Done? Mm. Feel like you're done with yeah, that? Yeah, done. 
okay. done. Um, yeah, I mean, it was great. It's a great route. It's a wonderful route. Um, I had a great time trying it. I actually think I could have done it, had some things unfolded differently to how they did. Like it definitely started off when I first started trying it. I was I didn't know if it was possible for me. And it definitely got to a point where I was like, ah, this is possible. Mm. Um, but then I basically, I think I was just really unlucky. I had two bad accidents on it. You had two. Sport climb. I, mm. I knew about one of them. You You flipped upside down and hit your head, right? Yeah. So that was the first one. And, um, yeah, so that, I mean, I don't know which was worse, really. I guess that one could have been really, really bad because obviously hitting your head is very serious and it was really frightening, but it actually didn't take me that long physically to recover from it because I had, I guess I had a mild concussion and I felt pretty rough for a week or two. And then I... Start, you know, I started to feel better and I went back on it wearing a helmet and I kind of did lots of practice falling and all this kind of stuff and tried to work out what had gone wrong. And I mean, that's a whole big conversation about why I flipped upside down, all that kind of stuff. And um, I felt like I really, I, I went back at it, back to that route with a really kind of logical, okay, if I can find a way to try this route safely, then I will continue to try it. If I can't, then I won't. And I felt like I could troubleshoot what had happened and find a safe way back. So I got back to the point where I was falling because where I fell and flipped upside down, I'd fallen off basically the last move of the boulder problem crux. So it's not the last crux of the route, but it's, you're going to fall there. Like it's a, it's a point you're going to fall on red point. So I couldn't just be like, Oh, I'll just try not to fall there. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, you've really got to be able to take that fall. And so I had to figure out why I'd flipped and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I did. And I took that fall, um, again and felt like, okay, I can, I can try this route. It is a bit of a weird fall, but at the time I felt like I'd adjusted enough things that that wasn't going to happen again. And it didn't happen again, exactly the same way, but it happened maybe like, was it two years later, a year and a half later, I basically fell off (laughs) the same move. (laughs) This is killer. And um, I didn't flip upside down, but I came in slightly sideways and I put my hand out, but I came in quite fast and I put my hand out like um, the back of my hand. And so I didn't quite get my palm facing out to protect myself. Mm. Basically midair, I was worried I was going to hit my head again. And I wasn't, I hadn't flipped or anything like that. It wasn't, it wasn't the same situation, but I broke my wrist. Uh, when I say broke, I kind of mean shattered. Oh, yeah, like it, it was not great. Um, I shattered the head of my radius into the wrist joint. So, you know, like often if you break a bone midway through, they can heal pretty, you know, uh, straightforward. But I shattered the head of my radius. So the kind of the, the joint was um, not in a good way. And also um, took off the head of my well, took off. So like the, uh, broke the head of my ulna as well. So both the forearm bones right at the end in the wrist joint basically got shattered and it was all displaced. So went to hospital and they had to do, what do they call it? They have a name for it. You know, where they like give you, give you lots of drugs and then wiggle it around and have to like reposition it back into place. Cause it wasn't just broken. It was all, um, yeah, like, um, fragmented and bent out of shape. So they gave me lots of drugs, which was wonderful. Um, I remember the guy in um, A&E, which I guess is like ER for you guys. We call it accident emergency. He was like, he was really funny. He was like, 
you've and I was slightly adrenaline by this point so maybe slightly delirious um and he was like you've got three options so obviously option number one we do nothing because you know we need your consent to do anything so I could just leave your wrist quite you know as it is he was like I wouldn't advise option number one not a good idea not gonna have a functional hand I was like okay he was like option number two uh we reset your wrist and I give you gas and air um you know it'll probably be quite intense I was like, right, okay, what's option three? He was like, option three, I give you fentanyl, which is a really strong painkiller and a really heavy, a really heavy, heavy sedative. And we reset your risk. And I was like, is there any reason I wouldn't take option three? And he was like, no, I would definitely take option three. I was like, okay, let's do option three. It's hilarious. I love the fact that there's people with a really good sense of humor in the health service. Really, really good thing. Um, Anyway, yeah, so they reset my wrist and I didn't end up needing, um, well, I didn't end up having any metal work in there. Um, It was a kind of reset it, see how it heals and it's healed well enough. Like my wrist is quite different to how it used to be. It doesn't flex as much. It extends more actually than it used to. It's at a slightly wonky angle. Um, And I'm still, you know, this was 2019. So I'm still not as strong in my left hand as I am in my right. In a basic crimp, I probably am, but not in like a pinch. Um, So, yeah. And also it's because it was my wrist and the crux of Rain Shadow revolves around an undercut. Mm. And I think I I would struggle to hold that undercut with my wrist since that break. Also, I mean... I'm kind of over it. Yeah. Like, I've yeah. been to hospital twice, off, the same hospital as well, <laughs> the local hospital to that crag, twice off that route. I mean, uh, if I went back a third time, can you imagine? They'd just turn me away. They'd be like, you're an idiot. <laughs> We're not treating you. You're doing what? Oh, the exact same thing? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good, good luck. Go home. You're on yeah. your own. I mean, amazingly, you know, other people have obviously done that route before me. Other people have done that route since I was trying it. And no one else has been to hospital off it. Hmm. It's really bizarre that I had these two accidents. Anyway, I'm kind of just like counting my chickens that I'm still vaguely functional and, you know, leaving that one be. Yeah. All right. Well, more more time and energy for just do it then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> still, to be honest, feels a bit of a pipe dream now. Um, but we'll see. Never say never. Never say never. I love it. Well, on that note, I want to, we've of course talked about this already in this conversation, but I want to ask you more about um, having a baby in your pregnancy. And I actually want to read the Instagram post that you just shared because it's such a perfect lead in to all the things I wanted to talk to you about. But I just, I'm, I'm just so interested. I'm, I'm really on the fence about kids. I, I don't have a partner, so I don't have to worry about it just yet, but I have no idea if I want to have kids. I can kind of envision a really beautiful life going down either fork in the road. And I think it must be such a harder decision as a woman who is such a high level athlete like yourself, who still has unfinished goals. And yeah, I was, I was really curious to get your thoughts on, was that a hard decision? And if you have any advice for, for women out there who are nervous about having kids and anyway, Mm. you, you posted this amazing thing that kind of captured all of that right after, right after I was, uh, coming up with that question okay so i'll go ahead and read this post from you this is from this is your new year's post this is from yesterday you and i are talking on january 3rd so this is right after the new year and you wrote uh first off the photo is just a 
really cute photo of Isaac just laying on the floor in the middle of a bouldering gym. And you wrote, when I imagined climbing postpartum, I thought the biggest challenge would be my physical body, recovering from pregnancy and birth. Now, I'm not saying that hasn't been a challenge. It absolutely has. But I'm finding that the bigger challenge now, Isaac is four months old, is logistics. It's a challenge to fit in my needs when working around his needs. And of course, his come first the majority of the time. I'm the classic modern woman. I want everything unapologetically, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. I love that. I want to train, climb. I want to be me and spend time in my identity as an individual. But I absolutely love being a mama. I want to spend all my time with Isaac. And then in parentheses, yes, I know this is, I know this contradicts the first point. Be the best mama I can be and put him first all the time. I love climbing, but I miss him when I'm doing it. I love being a mama, but I sometimes miss the old me. I think my challenge for 2022 is learning to be comfortable with having constantly contradicting feelings. What's yours? And then happy new year, everyone. <laughs> so I love that. Such a such a great post and such a great insight into um, such a great image painted there with those words of, you know, I think I think I want a clear answer. Like I want you know, having kids or not having kids to be a clear winner. And I don't think it's ever going to be that way. I think there's always going to be this kind of tension and and these contradictory things pulling you. And um, I just thought you captured that really well. But I'll just ask you this. Did it feel like a hard decision when you guys were thinking about having kids? Um, yeah, it definitely wasn't straightforward for us. Um, I think, you know, deep down, I've always wanted to have kids at some point but I always it was always later you know like when I was in my 20s it was always like yeah later later and then I got to my 30s and I was like oh, I don't feel any different later later and then I got a little bit older I was like hmm you know at some point later has to be now especially as a woman right so yeah we we talked about it a bunch because I think we similar you think to how you described it I think we could have had a happy, very fulfilled life, not having children and a very happy, fulfilled life, having children or a child. And, you know, we loved our life before we had a great life. You know, we traveled, we climbed, we lived quite a selfish, you know, life in a sense, not having to worry about anyone other than ourselves really. And, you know, making decisions very quickly and easily and <laughs> it's uncomplicated um, to a certain extent. And obviously having a child, a lot of that changes. When we were making the decision, I did, I remember doing a lot of thought experiments of like, right, okay, let's, let's kind of, for the sake of this conversation, decide that we're not having children. Okay. We're not having children. How does that feel? You know, almost like try and put Mm. yourself in that scenario as if you've made the decision. And I remember always feeling like, a little bit sad when I did the thought experiment of not having children. And when I did the thought experiment of having children, I felt excited, but scared. And so for me, that was a big difference. I was prepared to do the scary thing for the excitement and a bit nervous to do the thing that made me go, Oh, really? Not at all ever. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's such an individual decision, isn't it? And there's no right or wrong. And if we decided the other way, I'm sure we'd be 
very happy right now because we wouldn't know any different. <sighs> yeah. I can't really give advice, you know, like yeah, yeah. it's so, it's so um, up to the individuals and, and your relationship and your lifestyle and your workload. And, you know, like we have quite a flexible lifestyle. So this space in theory for us to keep things going um, and and to have time still to go climbing around other things and other commitments and work and stuff like that. Whereas I know for a lot of people, it's it's kind of tight, you know, and if you add a child into that, something has to go. And sometimes that's your hobby or your climbing or, you know, whatever. Um, so it's, there's so many factors that go into that decision. But for me, like you were saying, as an athlete, it's also that like, oh, right, okay, my body's going to change. There's the whole pregnancy side of it and then recovering from it. And you have no idea what that's going to look like. And some of that's genetics. Some of it's just luck. Some of it's, you know, it's all just so unknown. And it feels risky and scary and exciting and all the rest of it. Um, and for me, actually, the Red S really played into it because, again, we, we've done a separate podcast on this, but... Um, with the relative energy deficiency in sport, one of the, the big things for me was that I lost my menstrual cycle and re my recovery was quite revolved around getting that back. And when I got diagnosed with red S and so I, the whole reason it came to my attention that something was wrong was because I came off the pill and not to get pregnant, just to see what my body was like off the pill and my periods didn't reappear. And I eventually, you know, got a hormone profile done and then saw a doctor and they were like, ah, okay, I think this is red S. Um, and at the time I remember them saying, you know, do you want to have children at some point? Because like right now you, you basically couldn't, you're not ovulating. And I remember feeling like devastated, you know, really feeling, I was 32 at the time and thinking, mm. my gosh, I basically rendered myself temporarily uh, uh, infertile. And if I don't change my behaviors, that's not going to change. And I think the fact that that scared me as much as it did told me a lot about what I wanted. Mm. Um, and then because I had to stop climbing for a while and I had to like put on a bunch of weight to restore my periods, by the time my periods came back, I was kind of like, well, I'm really out of shape now anyway. <laughs> um, maybe now is a good time. So the Red S was a bit of a catalyst for you know, we, we, I think we pretty much decided we did want to have kids at some point, but we were like, oh, maybe in a couple of years. And then the whole Red S thing, once my periods came back, I was like, you know, you don't know how long it'll take. You don't know if you'll have other problems, other bumps along the road in conceiving. My mum had a lot of miscarriages. Mm. So I've always been quite um, aware that that was a possibility. And actually our first pregnancy did end in miscarriage. Um, and then the second one um, was was fine and, and ended with Isaac, uh, which is lovely. Um but, you know, all those things take time. And, and I was, I was in a, in a place where I was like, well, I could, you know, my periods came back with red S, but then it's, it's not over, you know, you've still got to kind of let your system recover. You've got to slowly build back in training and, you know, it doesn't, it felt like it, I was still at the beginning of the road of this recovery and refinding myself as an, as a healthier athlete. And I thought, you know, I could easily spend a couple of years getting myself sorted and getting back to a climbing well. Do I really want to do all of that and then stop then mm. to get pregnant? So there was a bit of a kind of logical thinking about it and thinking, well, actually, maybe now is a good time and then I'll 
you know, join the recoveries together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on all that. Oh, no worries. Yeah. And then, I mean, it was just really, really cool as well. Like it's, it's been a, it's been a roller coaster, but it's been a great one. (laughs) I wanted to ask you that. What have been some of the best surprises, the best things you didn't expect about pregnancy and about having Isaac and about being a mom? So with having him and being a mom is, I mean, people tell you about it, but it's hard to quite put to words the kind the kind of and the intensity of the love that you can feel for a little person, for a baby. And it, it's actually pretty overwhelming um, in, a, in an amazing, in a really amazing way. And maybe hormones have something to do with it as well. I don't know, but it's, yeah, it's, it's really incredible. I'm, I'm kind of not doing it any justice because there aren't really any words to describe how much you can love your child. Um, it's something that doesn't really, that words don't do really do justice to. And it's pretty amazing, you know, like his little face just makes me so, so, so deeply happy. Um, <laughs> everything about him does. And that's a wonderful, mm. wonderful kind of thing. Um, and pregnancy is really cool. I mean, I guess I have like quite a science, physiology, physio kind of background. So I just find it like fascinating what the body can do, what the female body can do. It's yeah. absolutely amazing that you, I mean, I mean, for a start, you have, you could potentially have sex once and then grow a human. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, for want of a better phrase, someone just literally has to plant the seed and then you do the rest. Your body just does the rest and you have no cognitive control over it. You're not like, oh, cool. So today I'm going to build the intestines and then, you know, make sure someone puts the eyes in and you know, your body just does it. No one consults you. It just happens <laughs> over this period of time. And then they come out and they're this incredible, fully formed, like human. It, it still really blows my mind. Mm. Um, and it's pretty cool to feel it. And when you feel like um, you know, like fetal movement and uh, baby kicking and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's kind of weirdly alien as well. But, <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it's, it's amazing. I really enjoyed being pregnant. I was also quite lucky. I think I, I had very like um, relatively easy pregnancy. You know, I felt pretty well um, for the majority of it. I didn't have many aches and pains or anything like that. So I was able to stay pretty active. And I think staying pretty active helps you to feel better in turn because you stay stronger and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, so I know a lot of women out there have very difficult pregnancy experiences and kind of want to nod to that. And not everyone's is, is, uh, feels magical. I know mm. it can feel pretty dire for a lot of women. Yeah. I'm putting you on the spot with this question, but I'd love to ask, do you think you'll do it again? Have you guys talked about one kid versus multiple kids? <laughs> and I mean, cause that is like, there's the first decision, but then like, how many kids? That is such a huge decision. And I'm seeing my my sister that I talked about earlier, she and her husband, I mean, they're mostly on the same page, but they're definitely, if they could have their way, I think, I think he's good. And I think she would have a second kid and mm-hmm. um, they're, they're compromised. They have one. And I think it seems like they're probably just done and they're going to, they're going to move forward with that. They have this beautiful daughter, um, my cute little niece, which is really fun. But yeah, have you thought about that? Have you made that 
decision yet? Yeah, we haven't made that decision okay. yet. No. So we'll see. Yeah. To be continued. To be we'll continued. See. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I'd love to ask you some of the just logistical questions if you have advice for people. Yeah. And I got a really nice, uh, a really great question and email from Anna. It wasn't actually specifically for you, but Anna emailed me, um, said some really kind things about the podcast. Thank you, Anna. And then she was wondering, she wrote, uh, she, she wrote to see if I would ever consider doing an episode devoted to climbing training during pregnancy. And I thought this was a great question for you. She was specifically curious about, um, she said this is prompted by unanswered questions regarding the safety of hangboarding during pregnancy when your joints are loosened due to an increase in the hormone relaxin. So, of course, that's mm -hmm. something I know nothing about. I assume you know something about this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure. So, again, it, it really varies um, from woman to woman, like how much, um, like how, how you'll experience this. So I know a lot of women anecdotally, again, I'm not a medical professional, so <laughs> just disclaimer there, um, I, I don't specialize in training for pregnancy or, or anything like that. I, I can only kind of speak to my own experiences and, and those around me. Um, but I anecdotally hear a lot of women that really feel that laxity and therefore would adjust their training accordingly. I didn't actually feel much laxity. I obviously would have had relaxing in my system, but I didn't really notice it. So from a fingerboarding or climbing perspective, I never had any issues with my fingers. Um, through pregnancy, part of the fact that I was like a lot heavier, so they got tired. But um, you know, in terms of relaxing in joints, I didn't, I didn't have any kind of negative experiences. But I do believe that some women do. So it's a lot of with everything in pregnancy. There's a lot of just like playing it by ear and seeing how you feel um, at different points. Um, one thing, so I did actually stop hangboarding and any kind of kind of pull up and things like that when I was around like maybe four or five months pregnant I was still climbing but anything kind of footless I didn't do but, mm. but that was less to do with my fingers and more to do with my abdominals so um in pregnancy because you're you obviously start to get a pregnancy bump um because your uterus expands because the fetus is growing and you um your abdominals get stretched and um you can get some abdominal separation or you can essentially get uh, you know the pressure is harder to manage so any kind of, especially like with overhead work, so hanging, fingerboarding, pull-ups, that kind of thing, there's a lot of abdominal pressure there. And I noticed we, there's this term called coning or doming of your abdominals. So I noticed that if I tried to do a pull-up or tried to hang without my feet on anything, I would get this um, doming, which isn't the same as abdominal separ separation or diastasis, but it's um, it's a symptom of mismanaged pressure, essentially. And I couldn't manage the pressure um, there. So it might be that hangboarding stops for a different reason, I guess is mm, my point. And mm. um, having said that, I carried on doing a lot of stuff. Like I was climbing right up into the eighth month of my pregnancy. <laughs> oh, wow. I was also doing like modified deadlifting into my eighth pregnancy, like sumo deadlifting. Okay. And stuff. Again, not like maximal, you know, 10 to 12 reps at what felt like a manageable um, weight. And I think that really helped me both during pregnancy to experience um less pain and stuff because i was stronger and more stable and also postpartum and this was all managed you know with breathing in a certain way i was seeing a physio um a physiotherapist who specializes in women's health who was 
you know, checking me and being like, yep, this is fine. Like she was totally okay with me doing it. Um, so it wasn't, I wasn't just like being a bit of a cowboy. One person I would say is worth following if you're interested in kind of training through pregnancy is a lady called Joy. She's at Callie Joy Black on Instagram and she's brilliant. She's a strength trainer. She's, so she's like a personal trainer, but specializes in pregnancy. Um, she's actually pregnant herself at the moment. Um, when I first kind of connected with her was before her pregnancy, but she's um she, she specializes in that kind of thing and she's great. She's like a real advocate for staying strong in pregnancy where you're able to and modifying and appropriate um, training in pregnancy. So if someone's interested in that kind of stuff, I'd recommend following her. She's got loads of interesting stuff on her um, Instagram account. Perfect. Okay. I'll find her. I'll link to her in the show notes. And finally, as far as that goes, I wanted to ask you about nutrition. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll have you tell me your credentials because I forgot to write down your nutrition credentials. But I know you've studied it. And I'm curious to hear if you have any recommendations for nutrition during pregnancy, um, if anything comes to mind. Sure. So, um, I mean, just to be clear at the beginning, I'm not a dietitian. I'm a nutritionist. So that's I don't know in the U.S. how different I think it is the same in the U.S. that they're two quite different things. They're quite different. Um, yeah. Dietetics is a more dietetics is a more clinical study and and nutrition is um again like just just not quite as in-depth or not quite as clinical as um dietetics so i've done a nutrition course and i'm actually still actually studying um i'm studying a postgrad diploma with um the ioc at the moment the international olympic committee uh their sports nutrition diploma so i'm in the middle of that at the moment so it's more of like a sports rather than a, a general um and nutrition focus so in terms of pregnancy all i would be saying would be the general guidelines because that's not an area that mm. i specialize in so you know folic acid for the first three months and at least and um you know again you know just just simple things like making sure you stay on top of your energy needs mm. and um making sure you're getting enough energy in um but you know as to like specifics within pregnancy i, I would say that's probably out of my scope to be more more specific on Okay. Okay. Sorry, that's not very interesting. You can always cut the nutrition bit if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, someone saying just follow the general guidelines that worked for me. I mean, that's pretty powerful. You know, there's because I'm often someone who's like, okay, yeah, general guidelines, but like, what should I really do? You know, like, what what are the secrets or what are the things that are going to be optimal for me. So just, just hearing that I think is really helpful. So thank you for that. Well, I think it's sometimes as well, like it's worth, it depends on your healthcare system. Like sometimes in the UK, you can be checked for things like calcium levels and iron levels mm. and stuff like that, which can go lower in pregnancy. So just making sure that if you're having any symptoms and things like that, that you, you get some of those nutrient checks, um, if that's appropriate. Got it. Cool. Okay. Mina, I've been keeping my eye out for these cues and uh, <laughs> you seem wide awake. This is, we've, we've been talking for two hours and 20 minutes and um, I oh, so, it's been that long. It's been wow. that long. Yeah, it's past my bedtime. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think it's time to wrap up. I really appreciate your time. It's been so fun to chat with you and to really get to know you better um, after meeting you 10 years ago and um, following your climbing and your story and, and everything. So 
really great to do this. Thank you for doing this. And it's been really great to have you on. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. And anything, any final thoughts or anything you want to share about what you're up to or Curious Climber podcast or anything coming up or, or anything like that, the people, uh, places um, people can follow you, things along those lines? Yeah. I mean, I guess I have an Instagram account um, that I don't post on as regularly as maybe <laughs> I should. Um, Hazel and I run the Curious Climber podcast, um, which again, we are a little bit infrequent with episodes at the moment because <laughs> we're a bit chaotic. We're not quite as organized as you, Stephen. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that's probably it. Awesome. Can I ask you what, what led you to start that? I, I I know this is a whole rabbit hole. You can give me a short answer, but um <clears throat> but yeah, I'll share your podcast. I love your podcast. I think you guys do a really great job and it feels like a fun compliment to what I'm doing just because you talk to so many different people that that I have never heard of and it's been really fun to follow that. But yeah, what what led to starting that? Um, again, so it was actually around the time I was recovering from the Red S stuff and I had to stop climbing for a bit and I realized that I had this huge hole. You know, climbing took up so much of my life you know just time but also energy and focus and passion and I was like oh, I need something to fill this you know void because at the time I didn't know how long I was going to have to stop for it turned out only to be a few months but I thought it might be you know a year or something or even longer and I didn't know how my relationship with climbing was going to develop once I you know got better and stuff so I was like trying to find things to kind of pour my energy and passion into that weren't kind of physical essentially weren't sport and I've always been kind of creative I like having interesting conversations with people I like writing and and I thought wow I wonder starting a podcast to be fun and then Hazel and I were just honestly we were just chatting and I mentioned it or she mentioned it I can't remember who mentioned it first but she said that she'd also been thinking about doing this for a while she'd actually already recorded one episode the first episode we put out with Beth oh no way and she was like, oh, I've been thinking about doing this and I've got this one episode. And and I was like, oh, I've been thinking about doing it too. And, you know, and we got chatting about ideas. And originally we were like, cool, well, you know, we're both going to do this cool thing. And then Hazel was like, why don't we do it together? Or like, we could do it together. This is something to think about. And then so we had all this back and forth about it and basically decided that we had a really similar vision that neither of us were trying to make a living out of it. We were just doing it for fun. And that we also didn't want it to be this huge workload. And both of us had the same concerns over like, oh, am I going to be able to like churn them out quick enough? And so we were like, well, if we do it together, it's like half the workload. And it's also kind of half the pressure mm. um, yeah. of like, I don't know, it takes confidence to be like, I'm starting a podcast. And I think we both felt a bit nervous about that side of it. You know, like, is anyone going to be interested in listening to my podcast? Kind of imposter syndrome. And somehow doing it together made it way less intimidating for both of us. Um, and also it's just cool to have someone to bounce off. Mm. And like, you know, if one of us is, if Hazel's off on a trip somewhere and can't record for a bit, I can do a few episodes. If, if I disappear and have a baby, she can do a few <laughs> episodes. <laughs> it's slightly unfair on that front. Um, but yeah, so anyway, it just kind of grew from there and and we went for it. Yeah, that's amazing to hear that. That's I didn't know the backstory and you, you guys are such a... Um, a perfect complimentary team. Um, it just, it's hard to imagine you guys not doing it together. You guys are so similar and, um, you're, you're both such 
good communicators. You're so interested in people. You ask such thoughtful questions and it's, it's awesome to see what you've made. Oh, thanks. Do you have any favorite episodes that you point people towards or that you like to places where people can start, I guess, if they're just discovering the show? Yeah. I mean, I think Hazel's episode, the very first one with Beth is really, really good. It's really interesting. And, um, I thought that was, that was a really great one. Um, actually one of my most recent ones as I had quite as many listens to some as the others but the one I recently did with Andy Cave I really like I mean I just think he's a great character really interesting got some great stories to tell about his life and you know time spent in the mountains and just a really really lovely character and a good storyteller so I, I really like that one actually the the most recent one um that, that springs to mind but yeah there's a bunch in there and there's quite it's quite like an eclectic group of people or group of episodes so I think you know depending on what your interests are you can probably find something that um that you'd, you'd like in there so hopefully anyway <laughs> awesome well thank you again for people listening thanks for tuning in I'll be sure to link to the curious climber podcast um, those episodes that we've been talking about Andy Cave and Hazel's episode with Beth as well as Mina's episodes with Hazel, where you two have talked to one another about flow state and about Red S and things like that. And our episode that we did a three-way about Red S, I'll share all that in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. And that's it. Thank you again, Mina. So fun. So good to talk with you. And it's way past your bedtime. So thank you for being so generous (laughs) with your time. (laughs) You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey friends, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a quick reminder to check out Athletic Greens if you want to see what all the hype is about. Head over to athleticgreens.com slash nugget to try it out for yourself and to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D, very important this time of year, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you enjoyed this episode with Mina, then stay tuned for... More with her coming soon. We've got a really fun collaboration in the works with Hazel Finley as well. And finally, if you are loving the show and are unable to support financially, I would love it if you have an iPhone, if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. A lot of you have actually discovered the show from browsing for climbing podcasts, and those reviews help a lot. So I would really appreciate it. I do read them and appreciate the feedback. And if you love this episode, another thing you can do is to send it to a friend of yours who you think would enjoy it and find it interesting. Those are both awesome ways to help the podcast. They're free, and they go a long way to support my work and what I'm doing here. So... Thank you so much. Much love to you, my friends. I hope you have an amazing week. And thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. We got the right, so we put the hammer right down. Wanna be like us?